Do you know where you are? Do you know where you are? is Appetite for Distortion. And welcome to the podcast, Appetite for Distortion, episode 90. Holy crap. Uh, it is Brando and... On the line, one of my our, our favorite uh, co-hosts and, and and friend and journalist and writer. I mean, you have so many titles. What should I refer to you as? Uh, just the the defender of the truth, Artivana. Like, what what do you want your title to be? I don't know. I pretty much I go by writer at this point because journalist just grosses me out. So I go by writer, mm, columnist, the Playboy, GNR historian i guess whatever you guys want i don't really care i'm just a human <laughs> being and i and i really just don't care what you call me <laughs> as long as you call me right ladies wow what a way to start off the show but but uh it's funny you say because that's how we kind of first bonded you and i and i think your first episode i don't even know if we were in double digits yet and that's when you found us on soundcloud uh i say we as in uh me my f- current still friend and former co-host uh Ian Scotto, so it's qu- quite incredible, 90 episodes now, and I, I just can't thank enough everybody, including you, Art, who has listened, reached out, it's just amazing, you know, 90 episodes, you know, uh, countless hours of uh, talking about uh, GNR and GNR-related topics. Uh, speaking of can which, I, yeah, speaking of which... Can I go on a five-second rant about um, your former co-host? Five-second rant? Uh, yeah, yeah, sure. I know you, <laughs> you guys had a Twitter fight. So, yeah, go for it. I don't care. So he, he's mad at me for unfollowing him on Twitter and ignoring his tweets. And here's the deal, okay? I told him this a long time ago. I go, I don't really care at all about anybody on Twitter. I don't unfollow or block or anything. I don't do that, but... If you consistently comment on my tweets with really asinine and ridiculous and borderline stupid opinions, I'll just unfollow you. That's all I do. I don't block you. I don't mute you. I don't do that. If you want to debate with me, let's do it. I'll, I'll always answer back. I'll just unfollow you because – and here's what I do. I unfollow him because I don't want him to be um, associated with my Twitter. I just, Jeez. You know, because he – and this is what happened, okay? And this is like a – I'll do a really short version of the long story. We had a debate about the musical talents of Dr. Dre versus Eddie Van Halen. I remember. And he took the position and he took the position that Dr. Dre just as talented musically as Eddie Van Halen. So to me that was a rejection of common sense and logic and <laughs> basically and basically like showed the the, de- the devaluation of his IQ and oh that my was the God. point of where I just decided, yeah, God bless the guy, he's a sweetheart or whatever, but musically he just doesn't really understand what like who I am <laughs> and what I stand what I stand for. I'm never gonna allow that kind of idiotic rhetoric to get by me without being completely stomped on like a fucking sledgehammer. So God bless his soul. Great guy, sweetheart and all that. But, you know, until he learns to value music over, you know, a a button pusher, we're going to have a little bit of a Twitter debate going on. So as the war continues. (laughs) Well, uh, you are are, are many things, and one of which is a man of your convictions. I've joked about uh, with Scotto, some of his musical taste, but then again, who am I to talk? I mean, we both like Creed, but I don't have Britney Spears next to Guns N' Roses in my, you know, collection or whatever. 
But I mean, who uh, the fuck gets a Molly Crew tattoo? God, bl- seriously, like, <laughs> God, sweet guy, hey, seriously, pe- like, come pe- on. People dude. might say like, the same what? thing about Guns N' Roses, you know. Uh, I, I wouldn't even get a Guns N' Roses tattoo, let alone a Molly Crew tattoo. It's like it's like getting a Guns N' Roses tattoo is ridiculous and, and weird, but getting a <laughs> Molly Crew tattoo is like. It's like instead of getting a Mickey Mouse tattoo, you got a tattoo of like a random cartoonist at Disney who was fired for like drunken, like drunkenness at work or something. It's like it just so. You don't have any tattoos, right, Art? No, I think tattoos are really boring and lame. Wow, you are off on a on a hot start. A hot start. Yeah, because tattoos were really cool. No, tattoos were really cool at one point when they were transgressive and weird, and people got tattoos as a form of rebellion. But when tattoos became like the equivalent of getting of like buying Nike product, they just became so like, it just, I mean, everyone has one now. Everyone has a sleeve. Well, you got to look at, Uh, you got to look at the, uh, the type of tattoo where they get it. I think you, you know, or at least I do, uh, who is actually kind of just following a fad and who just has always liked tattoos, you know, before we get into shotgun news, um, you know, cause the, and I've talked about it before. Use your illusion. Part of that is on my left shoulder blade at some point. I like how uh, yeah. tattoos look aesthetically. I like the combination of what axles looks like. I have a a, a family crest, which is like a zodiac signs of my brothers and I, my right sh- uh, bicep, and I kind of model modeled that shape after what Axel had, which was the Elvis design on that cap with the uh, the yellow with the with, totally yeah. So that was inspired by that, and I always liked how Scott Weiland's looked, like his sleeves looked, and he had the across the shoulder blades. So you know, to each I their own. Cool. And, I think they're cool. <laughs> All right, wait. Gra- no, no, I think great one eighty. Tattoos are cool. Tattoos are no, no. It's not, not that tattoos are are don't look cool. The aesthetic appeal of tattoos are fine. They're beautiful. Like you, it, it's art, right? It's art on your body. Well, it depends. There are shitty tattoos, you know. There are shitty tattoos, but it's 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 art on a canvas. And if the canvas is, you know, if there's a great artist who does something beautiful on a canvas, that's fantastic. But I think they're just so they've become sort of the symbolic representation of them is so boring and lame now because everyone has one and they get it because they want to fit into the monoculture instead of rejecting it. To, to, to me, rejecting monoculture at this point is wearing a suit and tie and, and proposing to a woman to be married. Like that to me is, like to me, the rejection of today's standard status quo suit yuppie culture is actually wearing a suit and starting family and like living in the suburbs. And that's scary to me. That's horrific. And that's, like, not what I want the world to be like completely. But that's kind of what the rejection of today's... Sure. And you know, I think what you're, grow, you're tapping into, which is what we're going to get into in... Um, well, might as well just play the soundbite now. News. So two tie-ins before we get to our guest, uh, Michael Monroe, in, in a few minutes. Yeah, Michael Monroe, of course, from Hanoi Rocks and just a legendary solo career. Uh, and has done a lot of work with uh, with GNR on the spaghetti incidents and the illusions, and it's going to be awesome. Right. But uh, for one thing, we were just talking about tattoos. Uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, thank our last guest, uh, Howard Tiemann. I know we were talking about it off the air a little bit, Art, who owns uh, T-Man Tattoo Studios out in Studio City. And right. I-, I learned that he, I think we all learned, that he's the voice you hear at the beginning of Use Your Illusion, excuse me, of um, Used to Love Her. Uh, that, right. he, that he helped Duff uh, organize uh, or arrange so fine before it was a Guns N' Roses song. Just a lot of things that, and oh, of course, he filled in for Stephen Adler when Adler broke his hand uh, for one night at uh, at the Whiskey in 1988. So a lot of cool stories uh, stemming from, and he didn't get, uh, he wasn't a tattoo artist until he was 40. So I think that's a bit rebellious, I think. 
Uh, so I, right. I, I just want to make sure if um, anyone missed that episode, we found out some unknown GNR tidbits, uh, which is pretty badass. And speaking of, I guess, unknown tidbits and things that we we learn about this band, whether it's through this podcast or a book. So where are let's go? What's what's the Arthur news? What's the art news now? Because I know you are still working because you tweeted it. Um, I don't know right. a couple weeks ago that you're working on a, a Guns N' Roses book. Uh, what can you yeah. update us on on that? Well, I've been working on it for a while, right? I've been wor- essentially working on this book for on and off, periodically, research, interviews, and just thinking about the band in various ways for almost two and a half years at this point, maybe three years. But yeah, still working on it. Um, have the deal, writing it, producing it, interviewing people, researching it. The only thing, the only reason I posted that tweet and the reason why I occasionally do those tweets is because I do get messages from people occasionally um, who are sort of just bewildered by the fact that I'm not writing about rock and roll at the moment and I'm not writing about music and I'm writing about GNR. Mm-hmm. I'm not really commenting too much on GNR. Um, I'm doing mostly political kind of punditry or, you know, working for Playboy as a columnist and doing stuff over there. I don't really have any, to, to be perfectly honest with you, there aren't really any rock bands that interest me at all at this point. Um, I think the, the, the genre and, and the scene as a, as a modern form of entertainment or art is sort of not dead to me, but it really doesn't have that much to say to me. I like what's happening in the local garage scene in Los Angeles. I always do, but mm-hmm. it's not exciting enough to write about. And I don't write about GNR because I've, I've written everything that I'd like to publish about GNR. Um, the book is going to be everything that I have to say about GNR, which is I'm saving it all for the book, basically. And, you know, I don't know. I didn't write about Chinese democracy this year. I guess it was a good time to write about it. It was the 10th anniversary, but, you know, it doesn't look like anybody did. <laughs> it doesn't look like anybody really wrote about Chinese. I know. You were, you were talking about it, but I just feel like 10 years is not soon enough to really reflect on it, especially when, the, you know, they're, they're kind of reformed. To, to look back right. at, at Chinese democracy, I'm like, I don't, I don't know if I'm ready to, you know, have a flashback and revisit that album because that was such an emotional, you know, is this a GNR record? What do I think of the process this new uh, Axl Rose music for the first time in, in you know, almost two decades? It's It was just totally. a, a lot. So um, I don't know. Maybe you'll, maybe you'll do it. But I'm, I'm looking forward to just your book in general. And I guess it all ties in. Uh, I love it. It's I, I love when the conversations have a natural fluidity, which uh, Guns N' Roses and, well, politics. So I don't know if you're going to tweet about this. Um, you know, I try to do this uh, always in real time. So it's uh, Sunday, November 4th. I'll tell you something, Art. That extra hour of sleep really, <laughs> really helped me. Uh, <laughs> so uh, Axel tweeted this at 3 a.m. this morning. Uh, he writes, just so you know dot 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 gnr like a lot of other artists opposed to the unauthorized use of their music at political events has formally requested uh, our music not to be used at trump rallies or trump associated events unfortunately unfortunately the trump campaign is using loopholes in the various venues blanket performance licenses which were not intended for such craven political purposes without the songwriter's consent can you say shitbags and he uses an emoji. <laughs> the way he tweets, not just like what he tweets sometimes, it amuses me, but the way he does. It continues. Right. This was a four-parter. Uh, personally, I kind of like the irony of Trump supporters listening to a bunch of anti-Trump music at his rallies, but I don't imagine a lot of them really get that or care. And finally, and when your phone's blowing up because peeps are seeing, hearing, sweet child, that news at a rally, 
dot, dot, dot. As a band, we felt we should clarify our position. Peace with an American flag emoji. So, Arthur, um, I know you have a lot. You have a lot of feelings going on, and I know. Well, we just heard well, some of your 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 start opinion just on tattoos. So, I can only imagine what this is. Well, I don't really have that much of a feeling about this. I have a couple of questions. I mean, the first okay. thing he needs to clarify is where was this played? Was it a rally? Was it the campaign itself? Was it a fan playing it out of a boombox or a PA system? Because the thing is, a lot of these rallies, um, they sort of they, they they can be sort of ad hoc events with with sort of supporters of the Trump movement, and they can just be putting together a small shindig and playing music that they choose to play for whatever reason. And it could be even just sort of a, a playlist, and GNR comes on as part of that. Is it that or is it the Trump campaign officially using GNR music as part of a kind of campaign rally you know, heading into the midterms? I don't have the answer to that. I don't know where he got this information from or what he's posting about. So that needs to be clarified. I um, did see – I will see before you continue. I did see that question brought up on the My GNR forum uh, that they would hear Sweet Child at rally. So that was the first I ever really – Heard of it was watching it was just perusing my GNR forum. So okay, so that's yeah. so that there you go. That's probably where he heard it. He probably got a note from his management or somebody who saw that at a GNR forum and related to him, and or he saw it himself and and he's just kind of blindly tweeting about it. So that to me is a little little slightly irresponsible, but I don't think it matters. I mean, I think what we've learned is because of because of what Donald Trump has managed to pull off on Twitter, the sort of responsibility of fact-checking or being careful about things you say has been completely, um, sorry, there's random people walking near me, but I've sort of been. <laughs> oh, Art um, is in a cafe, the, by the way. So if you. Yeah, I'm in, a, I'm, in a, I'm in a hipster coffee shop in Southern Glendale <laughs> being very, being an absolute snob. But anyway, so. Yeah, I mean, it's been completely ejected from the – it's been completely erased from the rhetoric of sort of modernity, right? I mean, it doesn't matter if that's true or not. So Axel's going off that. I think the one thing I, 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 I object to that whole the, – the tweet, the one thing that's outright wrong or just not factually correct is the idea that GNR music is anti-Trump music. Um, I don't really feel that way at all. I don't think anybody feels that way. It's not inherently pro or anti-Trump. It's just rock and roll. And unless I, civil I war, I mean, civil war is just you can, you, but you can use that for. I mean, you could use that for George W. How Bush. Is civil war? How is civil war? How is civil war anti-Trump in any capacity? If he feels, it's only if he uh, Axel or anyone feels, which a lot of people do, uh, that there is a civil uh, war. There are different um, sides really happening in America right now. Like, it's vicious. So if he feels like there's another, another civil war, not the civil, but just as a, as a term, I mean, maybe that's what he means. Again, I'm just, you know, uh, I'm not speaking for him. I'm just giving my opinion just like you are. So that, no, I mean, other, other than that, you know. Civil war is not, I mean, certainly civil war is not being played, right? I mean, it, it's either Sweet no. Child, Paradise City, one of the more anthemic kind of songs. And, right, and that's I where I was going with. I Any of the songs used wouldn't be political, you know, that, so I don't, I don't get anyway, that point there, of it, right? There aren't there aren't any anti-Trump songs in the GNR catalog that they don't exist. He never even references Trump. He never even references conservatism, or even you know any sort of he he's never even none of the music is political in, in nature except for Civil War. But even Civil War isn't you know intensely political in any way. It doesn't really take a position in terms of ideology or philosophy. And even you know, I mean, he's never really taken a strong. Value. He's never explained his values in a very 
detailed manner where we know exactly where Axel Rose stands on political issues. We do, know he doesn't like Trump. Do you we want him to? Like, do you we know he's maybe possibly supported Obama? Do I want him right. to take a political position? I don't really care. I don't. It doesn't it doesn't make any difference to me. Look, he is to me. Um, he has a right, like any other American, to express his political views. The, the only thing I object to is when he uses um, – this is the first time he's done this, by the way, I think, for the most part. I mean, I don't think he's – yeah, I think it's the first time he's done this where he's said officially that the band um, is coming together as a collective to reject Trump supporters playing Trump – I mean, playing GNR music at rallies. So he's basically saying that if you're a Trump supporter, you're not a GNR fan, and we oppose you. Our music opposes you. I oppose you, and our band as an institution opposes you if you're a Donald Trump supporter. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a lot of ro- there's a lot of problems with that for me, um, because I don't think all Trump supporters are horrible, terrible people. I think there are many Trump supporters that are absolutely z- zealots and just completely lost in their own fog of bigotry and sure. You know, so and so let me yeah. uh, let me pick up from there before we because uh, Michael Monroe is going to connect with us in just a few moments on uh, on Skype, but. I, I, I agree with everything you're saying, to be honest with you, and I'm glad you said it before I did. Um, you and I have, I wouldn't say, we don't have polar opposite political views, and this is a Guns N' Roses podcast, of course, but I've always said it's the nucleus where we all meet, it doesn't matter, and then we just go from there, and this is where we are today. We've done uh, political conversations when they brought up the uh, Trump pinata in, uh, on, in the Mexico City show. Uh, of course, right. he has tweeted about it before. You know, I, I told uh, the producer... Uh, who I introduced you with in one of the shows I work uh, at here at uh, iHeart, uh, Buck Sexton's show, saying, um, you know, we were talking about, like, Devin Nunes, and I, I, it still makes me laugh that Axel once just tweeted, fuck Nunes, you know. He, so right. he, he's made his opinion clear, and I've talked about how I don't like how Ted Nugent does it, but that's just because he doesn't have my viewpoint. So, all right, so if Axel kind of has my viewpoint, I don't I, – I'm, I'm down the middle. I, I, everyone says that. I really try to believe I'm down the middle. Um, I don't, I think Trump is, uh, I don't like him. I didn't vote for him. I'm not going to vote for him again. I'm just going to leave it a blank. That doesn't mean I like Hillary or anybody else. It's just, I don't like how he behaves. That's just me. And that's funny because I used to like how Axel behaved by being a jerk. So I don't know, maybe I'm a hypocrite there, but what you said about the, the Trump supporters, right? I don't like how he said that either because, and you, you can read the comments, there, if you like Donald Trump, doesn't mean you are the cliche stereotype that you're a racist. That doesn't exist. You can be, you can like Trump for other reasons, just or maybe. Right. So there's, it's too much of a blanket statement. But if he is really set in that conviction that you know what he is pure evil, he is Hitler, which I don't believe. Again, I don't like him, but I, I think there was only one Hitler. Thank God, uh, that right. he's really hurting the fan base so it's going to be curious to uh when i guess if with this band when they come back to the states what's going to happen and it's like you know what they did that we, we we had an opportunity to see them twice in, in the u.s now he's uh he's you know against trump and i'm taking a position of maybe somebody a, a texas gnr fan or an arbitrary predominantly red state or whatever and they don't go. So maybe that will affect him. It's 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 going to be interesting how it plays out. But I don't think it was, you know, he has his opinion just like Ted, uh, Ted Nugent, and he it it comes with a risk. I think, and, and he's just going for it, man. But here's the thing. Here's and here's where, where why it's not a risk for several reasons. Number one, it's actually beneficial to his career and his brand for okay. several several obvious reasons. Number one, I mean, he's 
his fan base, whether, you know, he's been, he's been tweeting negative comments about MAGA and Trump for, you know, since the election, since pre, pre, before the election, hasn't affected any sort of, you know, hasn't affected fan base in any way. They're still going to shows. But I don't think he called out, like we said, he, he didn't specifically call out Trump supporters. And that's, again, you could be, you know, a jerk Trump supporter. Uh, I, I guess use a, like a blanket because I don't want to create um, any any more uh, divide in GNR fans that maybe this might cause. Uh, it's just, he's just never said that before. And I think when you're yeah, name but, calling, but, 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 but the thing is, the thing is, Randall, if he's consistently saying negative things about MAGA, the Trump supporters will reject him publicly and they'll boycott him. That's what they do. They, they do that. And they're very, very well, both sides, loyal. both sides. They're I mean, I, I think. Right. Hold on. They're extremely loyal. They're extremely rabid. If you if, if you reject MAGA publicly, they will attack you and ridicule you. And and they will never in any capacity pay to go to your shows. So I don't think the fans that are going to GNR shows are Trump supporters. And I think the ones that are going to GNR shows are the same as you and I go to a movie. Like, for example, like I go, I'll go and watch, and I'll do this, you know, regardless of their politics, I'll go and watch a, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio movie, or I'll go and watch a, you know, whatever, you know, whatever actor that I really, like, like for example, Robert De Niro. I love Robert De Niro films. I oh, sure. I mean, I think all these, all these individuals when it comes to politics are absolute buffoons who are not really well-educated or even, you know, should be forming these kind of opinions publicly without doing their research, which they never do apparently, but I don't for one second let it affect my opinion or, or taste of the, of the, of the art they produce. It, it hurts it a little bit. It wounds it, but I don't let it, you know, you're able my... to compartmentalize, which I don't think a lot of people are. And it goes for both sides. You know, if, if you can easily have the quote MAGA supporters against him, and then you can say, how, you know, their use of, in, in one in a million, the terminology there or the sexualization of women, and it's so easy, and then have feminists right. after them. So it's it's such a hard world to live in, but he's, you know, he's being fucking Axel. So if anything, whether you agree with him or not, I mean, this is the Axel no we always knew and loved, I suppose, love to hate, um, but I would like to see him talk in a more... Uh, open forum about this and not just tweet it out because I, I he's an intelligent man you may not agree with his opinions but I think he's really smart and I think he could be a, a, a better voice for rock and roll than Bruce Springsteen well, you know well, I think, you know but here's another thing that's really important had he said one negative comment about Hillary Clinton ever in the last two years um, you would have seen countless take down hit pieces on Axl Rose and it would have that would have actually affected his career that may have affected the GNR tour and that may have actually been a, a negative in their sort of you know re, reunion um, certainly I think certainly it would have been and I think this shows you know we don't know the the motives behind this is it sincere I believe everything Axl Rose says is probably sincere because of the kind of guy he is he seems to have never been insincere at the very least he's, he's emotionally honest but you know it is strategically in his sort of wheelhouse, it does benefit the band. It does sort of make them seem at least part of the now, part of the sort of, you know, woke rebellion against Trumpism. Whereas, like, if he had said anything negative about Hillary Clinton, they would have been called misogynist and sexist and racist. And before you know it, they would have been crucified by the media. So strategically, it's a smart move. It's, it's, it is the marketing move I would advise GNR. If I was, if I was sort of the, the communication guy behind the GNR reunion, I would have said immediately, Make sure you stand on the right side of history when it comes to your world, the world of the arts, and reject all forms of Trumpism top to bottom. And that's exactly what he's doing, and I think it's beneficial in that sense. What I worry is 
you're inciting sort of bigotry using a rock band towards an entire political movement, um, which is, uh, to me, to me, potentially dangerous. And to me, it could lead to something ugly happening at a rock. What, what I don't want to see happen is a Trump supporter going to a GNR show and getting their ass kicked. That's what I don't want to see. Happen, oh, of course. Ultimately. As long as that doesn't happen, I'm OK with all this. Well, that's the name in the game. That's kind of what I I believe at the end of the day is, you know, I can be totally against your beliefs. Just don't hurt anybody and don't hurt yourself. You know, I don't want to sound too much like a hippie, but just, you know, just live in your own little world. That's fine. I can live in my own little world. That's fine. But that's the purpose of this podcast. As long as you like Guns N' Roses, we can we can have a conversation. <laughs> and if it, if it gets heated, it's like, you know what? Don't you like that song? Or don't you, you know, what was your favorite? You know, you can always kind of decompress. I don't know. I think a little bit over Guns N' Roses. Ooh, I think that's Michael Monroe. Hello, Michael. Hello, Brandon. Yes. How are you, sir? Hi. How you doing, man? Oh, this is uh, awesome. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time. And I mean, I don't know if this is funny or not. Is it too late for you? But I mean, because you're a rock star. I don't know if this is if you're normally waking up at this time. Oh, I don't fit any of the stereotypes of a rock star. <laughs> I make my own rules. <laughs> oh, for sure. No, your 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 reputation certainly precedes you. I was just reading again, which I knew you weren't. I know you had your moment in the sun, but you didn't really go too much into the drinking and the drugs despite what you were surrounded with. So, I mean, people can look to you as, you know, kind of like a role model in a lot of ways, I think, especially since you're doing it now still and successful. Um, Especially because I'm doing it now and successful, yeah. And, and yeah, sure. But, uh, of course, I had my demons, you know, back in the day. I had to go, you know, I was my own kinds of, you know, things I had to go through. But, you know, really, to me, it's, there's nothing worse than the cliche, boring old sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and party hardy kind of, <laughs> you know, that Hollywood, you know, back in the 80s, you know, with that big hairdos and the posing and all that, you know, it's just, I just really don't want to be associated with that because I think those guys gave, most of those bands gave bad, na- you know, gave a bad name to real rockers, you know. I hear you. So before we go forward, and when I, I want to have like a different conversation, I don't want to hear about the drug, sex, and rock and roll. Actually, uh, Michael, on the phone with us also right now is uh, a writer friend of ours who's won some uh, awards, and we were just talking about uh, his name, Artivana, uh, who's is calling from California, and okay. we were just talking about what uh, Axel just tweeted concerning uh, GNR music at uh, Trump rallies. So we try to we use Guns and Roses as a as a jumping off point to have a cool conversation and to talk to cool people like yourself. Oh, that's cool. What is okay? I don't know anything about this <laughs> this Trump thing. And I don't. Uh... Oh well, he uh, Axel. I, it was asked in some of the Guns N' Roses forums, like because uh, Axel and Dell James, they've been very vocal about how anti-Trump they are. But some fans have heard "Sweet Child of Mine" used at rallies, and wondering wow. why. Because the Rolling Stones put in a cease and desist, and some other bands have. Why GNR hasn't? So Axel, uh, we were just talking about it, but just, but just a paraphrase saying that we don't want it used, but some of the venues have a certain loophole with a license, and just basically saying we are against Trump and Trump supporters. Just want you to know the stance in the band. So R and I were talking about should Axel talk about this? Do we like when musicians are are political? So. Uh, I mean, if you have any thoughts, I don't know how things are. The your your political climate is over there. Uh, you calling? From... Oh, you know what? You know what? I I have a saying, uh, and it goes: politics and rock don't mix. Mm. 
because uh, <laughs> politicians are, you know, only interested in, uh, they only act uh, based on their, their self-interest. They, you know, they get paid, you know, a lot, a lot of money. They get a high salary and they, they're afraid of losing their jobs. They're, they don't really care. They just want their positions and they want to, you know, for the wrong reasons. And that's why nothing ever changes and nothing ever will. Musicians can make the change if they really, you know, get together and make things happen because they really care. I mean, the Live Aid thing uh, with Bob Geldof, he proved it. And he could, you know, even though the, the food never really got to the people in the end because of the red tape and its insanity. Mm -hmm. But it, at least you could tell, you know, if, if you really want to make a change, people, it can be done, you know. But for some reason, <laughs> people are capable of uh, really making a big change in, in those areas of billionaires or whatever. I mean, if you have that much money, you could really change the world. But they just don't, you know, they don't care. Yeah. It's great. Insane. You know, it's, it's just too bad because, you know, <laughs> I've been doing nowadays, you know, just because of it, mainly because of the situation in the States. It's so obvious that, you know, I feel like I don't really need to explain anything to anybody anymore. Everybody. I get it. I get it. I mean, how are things? And I'm assuming you're calling from uh, or I guess we're Skyping uh, to you from Finland. Is that where you're at right now? Yeah. In Finland, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I was born in Finland, in Helsinki, and I grew up here until I was 17. And, uh, yeah, uh, so. <laughs> was there, I mean, what's the political climate there? I mean, you obviously don't have to go super deep into it. It's not a, you know, this isn't a news channel, but is it, is it something that you're not accustomed to? Like, are Americans more political in their music and in their arts and their movies than other places in, in the world? No, I think it's, you know, I've been... It's like the rock and roll was always about, to me, it was about, uh, you know, shaking up the establishment and, you know, uh, um, exposing all the, you know, liars and, the, I mean, the system, uh, like the punk thing was a good good kick in the ass because when that came up, that's what rock and roll to me was about being an individual, being being free and uh, sure. also writing songs, writing lyrics that kind of, you know that means something that may maybe uh, you know raise questions and there's something constructive without being too preachy, but you know I have to have something uh, uh, you know more than some kind of meaning in my lyrics in, in order to be able to sing it with conviction. I have to have something to say, and it wouldn't be like whining and moaning and complaining about the political climate. I mean, politics is so much you know uh, superficial. I mean, pretension, pretension, and you know. It's not really, it's not my thing. That's why I'm not a politician. I'm a rocker. I tell the truth in my lyrics. That, that was, that's the main point, like, you know. Right on. And I think that's why you, you've lasted so long and you still have such a, a rabid fan base, you know, towards the end of our conversation. I was sent in a lot of questions uh, to ask you. And, you know, I think just as, as much of any other guest that I've had, it was more like, wow, you know, I love Michael. Like, it just a lot of people were excited to, to hear from you. Um, so then where did, like, where did this, uh, Michael Monroe, I mean, I know literally where you came from Finland, but where did this, uh, you know, this, this vision of just to be an individual come from in Finland? Like what kind of, uh, what kind of kid were you? I, I gotta tell you in Helsinki, it was, it was exceptional in the late seventies was, uh, there was a thing that all of a sudden, uh, you know, when I was going to junior high, junior high, high school, there was like this, we call them James Dean kids. There, there's like a total, you know, fashion of, in a way of, uh, everybody looked like Happy Days and American <laughs> Fidio. So it's like a cross between skinheads and teddy boys. And we call them the James Dean kids. 
And even, you know, guys in my class, they would like cut their hair like that and they look like they're, you know, just exactly like their parents would like them to look and they thought they were young rebels. And I said, are you kidding me? This is crazy. <laughs> and all of a sudden, and they were beating up people, anybody who looked even a little bit different, uh, some poor old, you know, hippie guy with with his hair down his shoulders and they were, you know, gangs of them. They would beat people up and really they, they even, you know, people got killed and stuff. And But it was insane. I thought it was like, uh, it was so complete. I mean, almost, you know, every kid was, just like, you know, just the same. So it was uh, very clear, for, easy for me. I mean, walking down the railway station in Helsinki on uh, weekends, you know, anybody looking like me and <laughs> wearing makeup even, you know, I had my hair dyed blonde on top and uh, black on the bottom. It was almost, all, all the way down to my waist and wearing, uh, you know, electric blue PVC pants. And uh, me and Andy walked through the, the railway station. Andy was actually... Uh, with Hanoi Rocks when we started the band and we left Finland but when we were still here we didn't care you know we walked through walked through the railway station and these kids were just look at us because Andy had a drape jacket cooler than any of their you know gear he had a bright red drape jacket with uh, leopard lapels and his hairdo was kind of like a 50s you know type of even though it had many colors in it but you know you know and he was wearing creepers you know we were like we took influences from everything, you know, 50s, 60s, whatever. But, uh, the, you know, whatever looked cool. So they couldn't categorize us. So I think they were just like, huh? What's, that's not a hippie. It's not a punk. Uh, what is it? Well, you know, these people are kind of like, you know, cavemen mentality. You know? So anyways, so to me, it was an easy uh, decision to, uh, you know, leave this country, uh, first of all because of the atmosphere back then. We moved to Stockholm when we started Hanoi Rocks and we were on the streets for the first half a year, homeless. But I was happy because mm. I could make a living being a singer in a rock band. That's all I ever wanted. You know, I said, so I don't need it. I don't even need a roof over my head. I, I can, yeah, I can get by. <laughs> you know, me, Nasty, and Sammy, we were, you know, the first six months, we, we were on the streets in Stockholm, but then at least we could be free and uh, we, uh, you know, got by however we, we could. But... I mean, it's a shame the rehearsal place we had, our, our, you know, our original drummer had a rehearsal place at a subway station, uh, you know, uh, little outside of Stockholm Central. And there was like a, it was like a fallout shelter and you couldn't stay there overnight. There was a guard that always came to make sure that nobody's sleeping there and you know, otherwise we would have lived there. But, uh, well, some nights we hid behind the speakers and, it, you know, when the guy was gone, we played all night and... Uh, then we found out we got it was like where the platform where the trains go on the on the subway there was a big metal door and you go down even further down underground it's like a fallout shelter it was a, it was a cool place to rehearse and uh yeah, cool. so yeah, uh, almost i started out with nothing and i still got most of it left right <laughs> go ahead Art. Hey, Michael, i want i want to dive in and ask a quick question because you talked about your look and your aesthetic and how it evolved or changed um to kind of reject the monoculture of the, of the of the city or the country you grew up in, but what was what were your influences and what was kind of your aesthetic influence for the development of Hanoi Rocks and just your look and how did you come together? How did you, how did you bring it together? Because you guys really were the proto kind of influence on the glam scene in, in Los Angeles, at least for sure. And but like, tell me how you sort of brought it all together. What, what were the the artists, the movies, the books, the stuff that you used to kind of pull from? Well. Uh, Little Richard, R Little Richard was the original glam punk, whatever you know, the Love rebel Richard. rocker that uh, and still is today. Still, still, still to this day, he's the best 
rock and roll singer of all time, mm. hands down. The architect. And, but, but that, yeah, the architect, the emancipator, whatever, right? He's fantastic. Right. And it was, he was just, imagine in the 50s, a guy looking like that, uh, you know, being black and being gay and being rebellious and free, wild and free. And you know, the system didn't like it. You know, they're trying to shut him down and try to force feed Pat Boone and put down people's throats. And, but the kids knew the real deal. I, I in Finland it was great. It was growing up here as a kid. I, first of all, my my parents, my my family was. Uh, my grandfather was a cello player, a professional musician, classical music. Mm. So I grew up on classical music. My mother made me start taking piano lessons when I was about five, and mm. then uh, and my grandfather's father was an oboe player, also a classical musician, who was actually friends with John Sibelius, the Finnish composer. You know. And then, you know, so and my mom, my mom's musical, but uh, I mean, she plays piano from the notes, but she never, her father told her, my grandfather said that, get a real job and then you can play <laughs> as much as you like. <laughs> well, I didn't obey that uh, rule, but uh, still, uh, I got into, when I saw Black Sabbath uh, live in Paris on TV in 1970, mm. and I, wow, what is this? And then I saw, I mean, the, you, you, what was great here was like at the record stores, there were no fashions or trends or anything like that back then, which is great. They just ordered a little bit of every style of music. So I heard a lot of, you know, blues, reggae, funk. I mean, we, me and Andy would walk down, uh, this, uh, go down the street with a lot of secondhand stores and we saw this record, this album cover with was the Undisputed Tooth, you know, funk from the you know, early 70s. Uh, you know, five black guys painted silver with the platinum blonde uh, afros floating in space, platform boots floating in space with microphones in their hands. And it was like the album was called Higher Than High. I said, This got to be something else, man. So we bought the record, and it was just the coolest funk, uh, you know. So I, you know, I was more into mainly where with Hanoi, it was always about music and songs, and we had something special, and uh, eventually. You know, I mean, me and Andy we started the band, and uh, Nasty and Sammy came along. And uh, but me and Nasty and Sammy had that special bond because we grew up in the streets. But I got into, and then Alex Cooper. Alex Cooper, I found out that my <laughs> first records we got in the family was one of the first one was the Zeppelin, Zeppelin second album, and then my 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 father would buy us a. You know, his birthday, whatever. He probably went to a record store and says, well, what do the kids listen to these days? And Alice, <laughs> you know, and Alice Cooper, Love It To Death. That was that was like, that band was so cool. I was like, wow, this guy's really the guy that your parents wouldn't want you to go and see. You know, it was like, at the time, anyways, in, in America, too, it was kind of like, they thought it was crazy. And chicken killer or whatever, chopping up babies, whatever. The, <laughs> you know, right. Rumors and stuff, but but I mean, you know, we we liked all kinds of music, and then discovered bands like, well, before the punk thing, you know, there were uh, the Hoople, you know, the Faces, and uh, oh, one of my favorite uh, punk bands is the Damned and the and the Rot, the Rots. They mm. made only a, mm. two albums. They were fantastic. First album, The Crack, is like you know, outstanding. Unfortunately, the singer died. ACDC with Bon Scott, the first album. Long way to the top and all, you know, that stuff was like, aha, uh -huh, that's a rock and roll singer. That's what I'm going to be. Yeah. <laughs> you know? What did you, what did you, being in Europe, what did you think about the Sex Pistols? Because you were kind of what, like probably, you know, 10 or 11 years old when the Sex Pistols were making their early kind of noise in the UK. What did you think about them? Or do you, were they part of your scene? Did you know about them? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, by the time the punk thing uh, got to Finland, it was already a fashion, you know. 
So it was just, you know, get a uniform, you know, with safety pins and whatever. Look at <laughs> that look, you know. Yeah. And that, to me, it was like, uh, as a matter of fact, Andy McCoy, my, my the other guitarist in Hanoi Rocks, he when we first met, he was in a band in Finland called Breard. And they they were the they recorded they they made the first the punk single you know they recorded they were the first punk band ever to record in Finland. Uh, the Pistols were banned from coming to Finland. They were going to play here. The Ramones played here. I think I didn't see them, but they played at the House of Culture. I think in 1977. Nice. Yeah, and then uh, the the Pistols were supposed to come, but they there was some uh, I forgot what it was like some kind of. Uh, you know, politics involved or whatever. Some some uh, child, uh, uh, you know, I forgot what the organization was, but they managed to go as far as to get them banned from coming to the into the country, which was a big favor to them because I mean, like in England also, they're so stuck up in the old values and stuff, so they they couldn't handle the pistols. So there was a big scandal and stuff, and that only helped them become more famous. You know, it's like a favor mm. to them. So I think it was cool. The music was great because uh, the singer couldn't sing for shit, and it was still the best singer in the world. <laughs> yeah. That's I mean, punk, it's, baby. It's like, yeah, I mean, Buddy, that song, is most, that like changed my life when I heard that song about the, uh, the some girl who, I guess some girl had uh, tried, tried to kill her baby, you know, first, like a newly born baby. Her way of abortion was to throw it in a tr- garbage or something, put it in a plastic bag and leave it in the garbage. That's what the, the lyrics and the, the, the energy and the, the fury and the, you know, the anger is an energy kind of thing. Uh, the way he sings that song and the chorus, it's not even a note that he sings. It's like between notes. It's still, still it's just like unbelievable. It's great. And the ending with the, you know, animal. I mean, it's just like magical. And that's a great example for because at that time it was it was really good because in Finland also there's a lot of these you know rock police people they, they call them like you know the guys who stand by the mixing board and says ah oh, whoop he played the wrong note and you're not supposed to be like mm. uh, uh, in Finland uh, the mentality also is kind of like excuse me for existing I'm not trying to be anything I, you know don't bother uh, uh, however a lot of progressive rock bands guys uh, standing with their backs to the audience you know. The greasy hair and the dirty jeans and not, when we came out with Hanoi Rocks uh, most of the people in the scene they were like oh well, what are these guys you know you're trying to be something you're how dare you say that you're you know you basically when we came out we wanted to put on a good show and wanted to give people their, people their money's worth and uh, you know wanted to look good I said of course we'll take the money too you know <laughs> if it's on our own if it's on our own terms you're not gonna not gonna become you know, not going to prostitute ourselves for it, but of course, you know, what the hell? Yeah, sure, we're rock stars, we're rockers, we're rock stars, so what? You know, what do you expect? What, what are you supposed to go on stage and apologize for, you know, for being there? And so we came, our shows were like, like an attack, and eventually, we, as soon as, in Finland, it's a funny thing, when, when we started getting, you know, we left the country, and, you know, it was the first goal we had to get as far away from Scandinavia as possible. Mm. You know, Stockholm was a good, good start, but then, we relocated to London in uh, like 81, 82, and then that's what we were based on. And uh, the band was growing, and it was a it was a special, like a family kind of thing. And we grew up together, and the band had more like a punky attitude as opposed to glam. They were trying to categorize us all from the beginning. They were trying to make it, they call us uh, even heavy metal at some point. And uh, mm. the labels were, 
sort of interested, but they they were starting to get all of these. I mean, to me, as soon as some movement, something has a name like grunge or whatever, it's over. Because then there's a whole bunch of bands trying to sound like the one band that made it big and, you know, right. they're sort of like looking up to. And then everybody, they'll never sound as good as the original one, but they'll still sound the same, you know. Because so, in the old days, 60s, 70s, and even early 80s, I mean, we didn't think about how how are you gonna market this record? You know, what are you gonna what are you gonna sort of what is who is this directed to? And you know, think about the business stuff. The business is killing it all. It's all about money. Corporations want their want their investments back and all that. And that's then uh, they're trying to play. It. They think there's like a like a formula for a hit song or you know a hit artist. And it's not. It doesn't work that way. They try. They're still trying to do that now with uh, whatever's popular, whether it's the SoundCloud. Yeah, oh, I sound old. Yeah, the, the SoundCloud the rappers. Like, Sorry, like the SoundCloud rappers. I I sound old now. Saying those kids and their and their rap music and their face tattoos and they're just they're churning them out like they were with. Uh, well, let me let me use the um. You alluded to it at the beginning of our conversation, uh, but I saw this written and you can tell me how you feel about it. That you yeah. and Hanoi are considered one of the founding fathers of Hollywood glam rock. Like, do you Yeah, that was unintentional. That? But <laughs> actually, uh, for me, uh, I noticed that. And, uh, you know, I was in, I lived in New York for 10 years. And I moved after Hanoi Rocks broke up. It was like in, in when that accident happened in 84, in December, then in the year uh, 85, I moved to New York. First thing, I, I mean, I just wanted to put, uh, I mean, Hanoi was not the same. If one of us died, then it was not going to be the same. And mm. not only Razzle died, Sammy Alpha left the band. So it was only me and Andy and Nasty left. And uh, I just didn't want it to become, you know, a parody of itself. If, if the wrong guys would come in. I, I, I'd never even auditioned anybody, you know, which... That's amazing. Started band, which, like, you know, that was our attitude. It was kind of like, what am I doing? You know, we're not... We're more than musicians, you know, personalities. So that band couldn't continue. So I, I just had no other plans than make sure that Hanoi was put to rest with, its, uh, the, with the band's integrity intact. There had to be one band that wouldn't sell out. Mm. So, I mean, that, that's that's pretty big of you to to feel that way. And, and, and well, considering uh, I, a lot of the bands, I mean, now, I mean, just as an example, I mean, of course, Guns N' Roses in the lineup changes. Well, that guy Guns N' Roses, they had the right attitude. They okay. had the punky, they, they picked the right, you know, they were influenced by Hanoi in, a, in a, the coolest way, and they weren't trying to, like, cop the look or, you know, make a big hairdo. And uh, uh, that was the, the thing about it was uh, uh, I was told about, I mean, you know I, know, I know what they're talking about, but so most of those bands missed the point. They went for the, the look of the big hairdo. I never wanted the big hairdo. I just wanted to be a little wavy. My hair was so boring and straight, so I started back combing. So it was a little bit wavier. And, and now, then, uh, sometimes when I hadn't cut it, it, it was kind of like pretty big, like Johnny Thunders in the cover of the New York Dolls album. The New York Dolls and Johnny Thunders and the Heartbreakers, the Dead Boys, Steve Bader's, very important person. Those two people, Johnny Thunders and Steve Bader's. So just to let you tell you about Hanoi with the songs, the music, it was it was great. It was we played anything from punk to calypso. We, we defied all categories, and and you know the record sales never really translated the Hanoi's fame. And we had a big you know I was rumored to have been dead already in '85. From when when AIDS came around, it's like oh yeah he's already dead. Die young, live fast, die young, all that crap. But uh, I was told that you know so he started this glam thing. You know here Michael Monroe. So I 
the king of glam rock. He said, I don't know what the hell you're talking about. It's just a rock band. Come on, man. <laughs> it's like, okay. We grew up around uh, in the early 70s when bands were, even the Stones, everybody was kind of a little bit glitterish. And Mark Boland was, he was like, that's Johnny Thunders. One of, one of Johnny Thunders. Uh, when Johnny saw Mark Boland in London, right, that was a big influence on him. And you could tell it. You know, you get influenced by other artists, but you you take uh, the influence and then you make your own thing out of it. So you have to reinvent yourself, and it's the more personality, your personality and your integrity. That's what it's all about. That's why it was so much fun. I mean, bands were different in the past because everyone's doing their own thing. You know, you had you know Matka Hoopu with Janis Joplin, The Doors, Faces, whatever. I mean, Steve Marriott, the MC5. Yep. Uh, uh, Iggy Pop and you know Alex Cooper, and then you know people had bands had more personality because no one no one really cared about it, it was more like let's do our own thing and you know they, that's already been done and let's not try to copy those guys because you know they already done that and it was more exciting it was it was more uh, you know creative and stuff so then when we got into the business uh, so I mean the nineties by the by the time. We hit the 90s, music music no longer had any business in the music business. Huh. And that's the way it's been since then. It's about business. So music becomes secondary and that kills the creativity. And, but that's still, you know, it's not all bad. There's still great bands. I'm so glad the Foo Fighters, uh, Foo Fighters are as big as they are because yeah. they're a great example of a authentic, real, you know, honest rock and roll, you know, and not, no phoniness. And uh, I tell you a story about the L.A hair metal this hair metal thing is uh actually somebody wrote in some some magazine once that it's funny this new resurgence of glam rock is has uh you know started happening in hollywood and it started apparently it started by a band who doesn't even play glam rock they play rock and roll but uh you know i was i had just moved to new york city in 1986 um so the first thing I did when I started my solo thing, the only friend I had, first of all, was Steve Bader's. You know, I moved in with him eventually. I was taking care of his cat when he was on tour, and then okay. we became the best of friends. And, uh, you know, in the London, uh, the summer 1985, I, uh, you know, lived with Steve, and Steve was sort of saying, like, you know, you want to go solo now, right? I, said, I don't know. I have no plans. I, said, I don't know. I can't write. I can't do anything. I used to be able to write. And then he says, oh, sure you can. He just like reminded me of things like, oh yeah, it's, uh, yeah, actually, yeah, I do, I do have some ideas, and then uh, he, you know, he was just, he, we were best of friends, and we, you know, eventually I moved in with him, and it was so cool. And little Stephen Van Zandt, you know, little Stephen, his and the Disciples of Soul, Voice of America, that album came out then also around the early, it was 81, 82 or something, 80. I would saw them live too in London, and little Stephen wanted to produce Div. And Stephen knew what a big fan of. I mean, that that was the thing I wanted. To me, starting my solo career, I really came onto my own as a songwriter, and I needed to have songs with a meaning, like like with you know, Steve, the Lords of Any Church uh, at the time. After, that was after the Dead Boys. When Steve moved to London, he started the Lords of Any Church, and uh, the first album, you know, had that line in the credits saying, "The truth is the sword of us all," and and you know, open your eyes. That that song. You know, video games, turning the kids for war, army chic and high fashion, fashion store, Lord orders, under a job, prison field where the rich still rub. Now it's like the punk thing, like Bob Dylan, like anybody who, like, you know, Bob Dylan made Donovan look like a like a wuss, because his lyrics were like more like the truth, you know, in your face, and not this poet, poet poetry, you know, kind of how can I charm this girl kind of stuff. Hmm. And 
I was not into, well, basically, the, when I was at a club in New York, like I started saying, I, was, I just moved in there and I, was, I wanted to see Mason Ruffner, this great guitar player from New Orleans, R&B, well, what, what used to be called R&B anyway. So uh, this guy comes up to me and introduces himself. He says, uh, Michael Monroe, right? Uh, uh, hi, I'm, my name is Rick Browdy. Rick Browdy, I, um, I wanted to apologize to you about poison. <laughs> I, was, I was like, what? Uh, what did you put something in my drink, man, or what? <laughs> what are you talking about? Oh no, no, Michael, no. The band Poison. I produced their first album, and when you guys broke, your drummer get killed, and uh, you guys broke up, then we took your thing and made millions, sold millions of records. I said, "Excuse me, what? Is that what you were trying to do? Oh man, you didn't even come close. Don't worry about it, man. You missed the point completely, man. You know, it's just like I, my sleep is untroubled. I wish you the same." Good, nice to meet you. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, I mean, that he felt guilty, you know, because uh, it was phony. You know, to me, I mean, I, phony rock and roll is a crime in my books, mm. but it's just like, you know, people do their own thing. They became such a big band that people think, okay, that, that's, that must be rock and roll because they sell millions of records. That's another point. Millions and millions of fans can be wrong and very often are because whatever, most of my ma- favorite bands have never been like mainstream, you know, because pe- most people don't feel so... Uh, passionate about rock and roll or music in general. I uh, like to have it come in one ear, go out the other. But, you know, musicians like us, uh, to me, it's like, it's my life. And uh, I really, you know, that much seriously, I do take it. It's, uh, it's not about, uh, you know, the Hollywood kind of, I mean, <laughs> I went to Hollywood for the first time. I was like, are these people for real? <laughs> 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 I was just like, Bubble City, man. I, I, you know, I just couldn't believe it. Then, uh, it was just very, you know, to me as a Finnish person, I mean, they think it's normal to, you know, spend spend a night with some, you know, stranger, some some <laughs> groupie, and and uh, uh, then never see them again. And you know, I could never imagine. I've never been with a groupie in my whole life. I could not imagine spending an intimate night with somebody completely stranger. Who might have my baby, and you know, it's like they thought it was just a you know, normal thing to do. You know? Really. That yeah, I mean, when Razzle died, I tell you, I'm not going to mention names so people know who it is, but somebody from another band suggested I get laid. He's got a list of numbers. These chicks can, you know, they come and do whatever he wants. And, you know, get laid. That'll solve everything. My best friend just died the night before. So, oh, what? Are you serious? You know, it's like, that's why I felt like a freak because as a, as a rock and roll singer, to me, it was nothing like, you know, it's like, that's not the life, you know, that's not real life anyway. It's like, but, you know, uh, I was resented by my bandmates in Hanoi Rocks for not drinking 24 hours as they were doing. So, you know, mm. what are you going to do? But well, anyway, in, in any case, you know, like I said, I never meant to be, I never said, we never ever said, or I never said I was big glam uh, or, you know, I don't, I don't like categories. And, you know, when you start categorizing music and, you know, it just limits the creativity. But we took the best for, of uh, what, what we felt was you know the punk thing and and the blues and and the uh, reggae's and you know in reggae music they make songs that mean something. The lyrics are actually sure. right. See, even if Bob Marley's uh, "Could You Be Loved," I mean that was a big disco hit. I remember, and because we were in the streets, we used to go to this place and played it all the time. But the lyrics were they had a message. Don't let them fool you. You know, don't let them change you. You know, think for yourself and be. Be your own person. Uh, yeah. So the look to me, we just wanted to look good. We took a little bit of everything we, you know, influenced by. But most people, would, the thing was, most people would look ridiculous looking like me. 
And then I see that someone's trying to like copy the look that they think that I'm going for, but I'm not. So it's like, oh, okay, I almost appreciate what you're trying to do, but look, uh, what am I going to do? What am I going to say? Like, all right, so you started this thing. Oh, don't blame me for that shit. I you mean, might as got, well but, just started selling Michael Monroe Halloween costumes and just cut people, uh, you know, save them the trouble and the work if they want to look yeah, like really. you. I mean, you know, even if you were a 300-pound truck driver, you had to have like a, you know, a huge blonde hairdo and uh, eyeliner on. <laughs> Most people look ridiculous. Like I said, some people uh, look great when, uh, with T-shirts and jeans and a crew cut, whatever. And I was like, you know, that's their style. You know, I got my style. And part of this, you know, show business to me, but performing, you know, you want you dress up a little more, you put a little more makeup. But I always dress up like this, and I wear makeup every day, it's just for myself. It's not like, I, it's not like we get, I get off stage and put on a, you know, jogging suit or something. You know, I don't feel, you know, the need to do that. You know, I feel comfortable, you know, with tight jeans. I like to feel my pants are on. In other places too. <laughs> well, it sounds like, and, and we could start off and um, with with fan questions, and this is going to tie into a question that Art had. But I want to start out with just uh, the precursor because I like how this fan questioned it, and maybe somebody you identified with when you moved to the strip, and you're like, "Who are these people?" Uh, this is from at uh, Garrett Smith Texas on Twitter. Insert obligatory Izzy Stradlin question. Uh, so I know Art, you had a specific question uh, about. Uh, Izzy Stradlin. What what about Izzy? Yeah, I mean, for me, having researched the band a lot, it seems at least from GNR that the one guy who took most of his influence from Hanoi Rocks, or at least the aesthetic and the attitude and the music, was Izzy. And um, he really kind of sprinkled that into GNR, which I think was really the, the difference maker for GNR when it came to the early, or you know, them laying down the groundwork of who they were. Did you ever yeah. get a chance to talk to Izzy about like his idea and how he? How he's influenced by you, and how that influenced Gnar? Well, I think he was one of the strongest songwriters in the band too, and he was definitely, I guess, he was the biggest Hanoi fan. I mean, he used to. Axel told me he used to tell Axel, "Do your hair like Michael Monroe and whatever, you know." But then Axel, however, found had his own style. All of them had their own kind of personalities and their look, and they're a little bit rougher than. Than Hanoi and the music was a bit, uh, bit, you know, more more heavier, heavier Aerosmith heavy, you know, than what Hanoi did. You know, Hanoi was more like, you know, whatever it was, with rock and roll, but lighter kind of rock and roll, not as heavy, sure. heavy rockish. But uh, their style, they had the attitude and, and and the sound of the first album. I think was with the uh, with the drummer especially. Uh, you know, he was pushing it like there was a chemistry there that was unlike anything else, because. Uh, it wasn't like I mean, God bless Matt, God bless Matt Sorum and all the other drummers who, who <laughs> you know play perfectly in time. But you know, um, I had uh, you know the original drummer. He had you know there was a chemistry there. It was like with Hanoi, you know, Razzle and Sammy. They weren't the tightest rhythm section, but when you know they would speed up sometimes and slow down. We didn't even have click tracks. Click tracks back then. Some songs like slowly speed up towards the end, and then it's the kind of thing that you can feel. But you don't really like know what it is. But it might—it's a good thing, you know. Perfectly flawed. So at least as long as they speed it up, they sped up together, and not, you know, in their own time. So, so then I would say um, Guns N' Roses had a—you know—they had other influences too, obviously, and they were really, really had their own unique kind of style. And uh, Nazareth came to mind when I first heard, you know, Axel, and that's why we became friends. Uh, All right. When he ended up uh, at the Dead Jello Rock and Roll video shoot, he was uh, actually 
you know, I told him, I said, yeah, you obviously like Dan McCafferty, right? Because your voice, I mean, it's very similar. It's amazing. It's great. Right. So he says, I says, yeah, and he liked my album, Not Faking It. He had heard, a, like, a, um, a pre, uh, he had a cassette that he had heard the album with before it even came out. And I said, oh, you must like it because it's a Nazareth song, you know, Not <laughs> Faking It. And he says, oh. He didn't even know that that was a Nazareth song. Apparently, the Loud and Proud album was never that big in the States, right? So it was Hair of the Dog was bigger, I guess. So I actually hadn't heard that record. So I said, wow, cool, man. Yeah, not faking it. It's a Nazareth song. I made my own version of it. But uh, However, you know, they had their own thing, uh, unlike some others who are trying to... I mean, that's the thing. Like, if you're trying to be something like, like what someone else is doing, it's like you're lost already there. Exactly. The that's why they seem like the, the only other band that you could identify with you know maybe they were credited with things that he never really tried to be credited with like you so you know it's it's interesting your relationship with uh, specific members in that band but you yeah. know i think it's funny when you mentioned uh you know izzy's like to axel look more like michael so that leads me to uh another qu- uh, fan question this is from uh, that was in early very early stages you know oh uh, sure before, when he had the before. hair teased yeah but I'm, I mean, sorry, I'm, go ahead. Oh, I, I know he, he didn't mean, like, uh, the brains. No, but I mean, <laughs> I, so for example, the Dead Boys uh, Ain't It Fun that we covered as a duet with Axel. Mm-hmm. It, it came about when I was, they already, I mean, they, first of all, in interviews, they always mention Hanoi and always, uh, they even released released our uh, European catalog in, on, on their label. It was a suicide on Geffen. And they were always trying to make people aware of, you know, Hanoi, because, you know, we were, like, one of the best kept secrets in rock and roll. Uh, unlike some other bands who may not, you know, who thought they were trying to, were trying to cop the look or whatever, and missed the point, and they were, oh, Hanoi, who? Oh, we never heard of them. No, oh, this is our own thing, you know. Look at the guys who are faking it, you know. So that's why Guns N' Roses were great because they're for real, they're authentic, you know. And uh, the Dead Boys song, uh, I heard, I was talking to Axel, and Steve Bader's had just, had just died, uh, you know, not too long before that, and. I mentioned the Dead Boys. He says, "Oh, he never really, you know, got, uh, listened to them that much, and uh, wasn't really that familiar with the material." So I made this tape with uh, their first couple albums, the first two albums, and uh, on an audio cassette to Axel. And then we were driving around in Hollywood, and he heard the song "Ain't Fun." That came on. He said, "Oh man, we got to do this song as a duet, man." And we uh, called Slash to put the band together, and we're doing like a cover album, you know, it's coming out next. And it was the spaghetti incident, you know. And I was like, wow, man, it's amazing. Are you serious? I mean, you could be put on the album that's in memory of Steve Bader's, you know. And I was like, yeah, yeah, of course. So that's great, man. And so I was like, wow, so many people will, millions of their fans will see Steve Bader's name there and they'll mm-hmm. hear this song. And, and we, we recorded it, we did it like face to face live we're singing it like uh you know you know sort of ritual steve used to do he put like candles around me when we were singing in the studio so we got candles put candles around us and uh, and in places axel sounds exactly like steve i mean it wasn't even duet it was a trio steve was there in spirit let's put it that way uh, and so so uh that was a cool thing and i said well, as it turned out uh so some other punk bands you know they covered new york, the new york dolls and stuff but uh, uh I had heard that some of the bands were gotten kind of greedy and people that hadn't even written those songs, the members of the bands, oh, I wrote some of that, you know. So I just, I just told them, I only got paid my session fee and I didn't want anything else. I mean, I had a manager at the time who says, okay, man, this is going to be the first single of the album, man. I'm going to negotiate a deal here. I was like, you stay the hell away from this, man. <laughs> you ain't touching this because I, I, I didn't want them to give, I, I didn't want to give any reason for them to think, okay, He's greedy or something like that. Mm. Money. I'm definitely not going to let money ruin that cool thing like that. Just all I asked for for uh, 
this, uh, the only fun cover on the Spaghetti Incident album was that uh, just if you can write down on the on, if it says on the album cover in memory of Steve Bader's for this for that song and just spell my name right. Awesome. That actually, this is um the, the passion of your fans is going to come through with this question. Uh, this is from Aunt Jones. So he writes like, when you're talking about Aiden Fun and the singer of the Dead Boys, the Baders, when it comes up in conversation, could you ask how Baders and Monroe ended up living in London and where did they hang out? So I guess maybe he wants to do some visiting to see where the magic happened. Well, yeah, Portobello, Portobello, <laughs> Portobello was where Steve was living already, and he got uh, uh, this other. He was in a in a place called the Cuttington Mews, and this place was really was uh, you know it wasn't that. It was uh, in the backyard. It was. It was. There was something weird about that place. It was like haunted or something. But the <laughs> next apartment here was great. And we, I moved. It was on top floor. Arundel Gardens. I think it was number thirty-one or something. You go to the top floor. We had the rooftop, and there was a park behind the the, uh, the, the building. And that's where I ended up living with him. His wife moved out, <laughs> and moved in. Took off with Andy McCoy, and oh. I moved in with Steve. And uh, you know, it was just like this drama. This. I mean, Steve was like I was making jokes about. I mean, I had a, a, uh, that same woman had been <laughs> involved a couple of years earlier. It was like one of the I, I, I had been also involved with her. So Steve says, you know, we're good friends, have lots of natures in Hanoi Rock. You know, we we swap guitars, we swap clothes, we swap wives, no problem whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so I moved in with I, I was taking care of uh, Steve's cat, Ziggy, when Steve was on the road, mm, and then. Right. Uh, I was there so much that uh, we figured hey, we might as well just move in and then we'll split the rent. And, uh, you know, there's two of us. And it was a great time. And then <laughs> Johnny Thunders, not too long before Johnny Thunders had, uh, you know, his, his girlfriend in uh, Sweden had, like, a girlfriend's family. I think they kicked him out of the apartment or something for one reason or another. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Get this guy out of my apartment. Get out of here. <laughs> so he came in there. He goes, you know, you fucking kick me out. I got no place to go. So, hey, you got to stay here, right? So living with Johnny Thunders and Steve Bader's, uh, well, Steve was on the road a lot, but, uh, you know, that was just around a time when Hanoi was breaking up and, uh, you know. But if I was with anybody who really was the most, I mean, sitting down with little Steven, and Steve, well, Steven came to produce the Lord's of the Church after he had met Steve in New York. And, you know, Steve knew what a big fan I was. So that's how I met little Steven. And he, uh, you know, him and Steve and me, the three of us sitting down, the only people, I, only friends I had and only only friends I needed, you know. And then that was around the time I did some demos. Steven played some toasting acoustic on and sang some backing vocals on my demos that I was making for CBS. Hanoi was signed to CBS and worldwide, and they wanted to, they asked us to make demos individually so they could decide whether they wanted to keep me in solo or not. And uh, then they, they dropped me and let, they let me go eventually. And... Uh, the first thing I did was uh, the Sun City project. You know, little Stephen um, got a, flew, um, I mean, came to London to record some of the artists. Artists United United Against Apartheid. It's the Sun City. Mm. You remember that project? Yeah. Yeah. So it's like to make people, bands, and artists aware that of the situation there. That you know, even though they would pay a huge amount of money to a lot of uh, artists, they would just you know then you'd be supporting their racist government and you know uh, mm-hmm. Mandela Mandela was in jail s- still at the time and so I was so proud of it <laughs> proud to be part of that and Stephen flew me and Steve for the video to 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 New York it was shot in Washington Square Park and the premiere of the video was shown at the United Nations building and you know Jesse Jackson was there it was a 
big thing, you know. I mean, all the coolest and biggest names in music, rock, you know, from Miles Davis to Bruce Springsteen to, to uh, you know, Keith Richards and Ronnie Wood and Bono and, you know, Pete Townsend and Ringo Starr and Run DMC and, you know, uh, Grandmaster Flash. Oh, so it was a huge amount of people. Peter Wolf, Bob Dylan. I mean, everybody cool was in that project. And it was... Uh, it was, and the message was clear. So that's what I, to me, it was, it was, I was like, yeah, that's my kind of thing. And when we were making a video in New York City, I, I decided, yeah, that, what I'm going to do is I'm going to move to New York mm. and, uh, you know, make a new start and, you know, start my solo career there. So little Steven and Steve Baders, they were the people that were really the most important. Steve was a really smart, very wise, uh, you know, and uh, sweetheart of had like a heart of gold, you know, even though his image was the nasty little Steve, you know, <laughs> but you know, check this out. Steve, he was live. I mean, it was incredible. But the way I got some moves from him, some moves I saw Iggy do later on. I saw, okay, so Steve's gotten down from Iggy. Okay. That's all right. We're passing on the legacy, but uh, he was so uh, on stage. It was like, Somebody uh, hit him over the head with a bottle and at CBGB's, and he, he kept singing until he passed out from the loss of blood. And, you know, that's dedication. And the other thing what he used to do, this a little guy, he was very light, you know, he'd climb up the, uh, the lighting rig, and uh, then he'd wrap the mic microphone cord around his neck, and he'd, like, he'd be like hanging like he was hanging himself, but he was holding himself with, the, with his other hand, but it kind of looked pretty wild. And uh, and one night and when they were on tour, and he was doing that, Doing that thing, uh, the roadie, one of the roadies noticed that you know the, there was like piss pouring down his leg, and the guy's turning blue, and he actually died on stage. He was clinically dead for quite a while, and they, but they revived him. You know, he brought him back to life, but he actually did die on stage physically. So how do you top that? Is that the ultimate? Yeah, I, I don't I don't think you can. And actually, this is another uh, dead boy related question, of course, relating to uh, Gene Arn as well. This is from Connie Pat. Uh, it's a little long, but he kind of wanted to. I think there's some cool points and things he wants to get across. Uh, when the spaghetti incident came out, it had liner notes uh, with the words, "Do yourself a favor and go check out and uh, go out and find the originals." And he exactly. did. And he did just that. So knowing that it was his idea, your idea, to record "Ain't in Fun," I still thank him to this day for turning me on to the Dead Boys. So yeah, right. Right. That, so he writes. Uh, my my not so original question is. Is there ever a chance we could see Aiden Fun performed on stage with Michael Monroe sharing uh, vocal duties? Um, a little bit more after that before you answer. Uh, I know people like me who would put their house on mortgage to finally see this five minutes of music. Uh, P.S. <laughs> a shout out to uh, his brother Beatty, who does an acoustic version of Hanai Rock's Dead by Christmas, and that has brought everyone to tears for the past 15 plus years. Thanks for the music, Sensei. Also, it would be nice if you mentioned that there's a crowd in Greece uh, that would kill to see him live. So I know a lot there, but uh, any chance? I guess the big question that you would ever join GNR on stage to do Ain't It Fun? Well, that would have been cool back then already, but uh, well, actually, as a matter of fact, there was a show with me with, when I was uh, at the Ritz, up, Uptown Ritz in New York City, and Guns N' Roses played, and uh, Cheetah Chrome was with me. I was in the audience with Cheetah Chrome, the guitar player from the Dead Boys. So <laughs> we were ready, but no, but we were not invited. But you know, we were never talked about it. It's never been discussed. Actually, it would be super cool, of course. I mean, that would be the ultimate. That would be brilliant. I, I'd like to see that five minutes happen too. But you know, okay. it's not. It's, it's not in my hands. Uh, you know, to decide. I mean, you, if you if if you'd ask me, you know, if you said that. Uh, you know, Guns N' Roses and Axel, Axel would, would like to do that. 
I, you know, I'm there, you know, no question about it. You know, it's not, it's not up to me really though. But, you know, I got to tell you what a cool thing Axel did by putting out those, uh, I mean, uh, saying that, you know, do yourself a favor, find out the original, uh, you know, uh, bands and, uh, and songs. That is like so, so, so it's a heroic, heroic deed. That's like so noble of him and so important to keep the rock and roll legacy alive. Check out the real deal, the real bands and, and all this, you know, Iggy from Mark Paul and Ziggy Pop, you know, it's like all these cool songs and bands that nobody will know about unless, you know, if they didn't cover those songs, then, you know, no, not people, people don't hear about that stuff anymore because it's always the latest, the last couple of, last couple of months of the the past year of uh, whatever was was like the most you know popular and uh, I used to laugh at the MTV the 100 be- uh, 100 best songs of all time and it would be you know the past 6 months or whatever it's been like you know <laughs> like not, say, oh yeah, yeah rock and roll cool man yeah keeping up the legacy they call themselves music tv then they should be actually it should be their responsibility to make sure to ed- educate people about where music comes from, and you know, so that's why what Axel was doing. That's to me, that's like God's work, you know. <laughs> yeah, so, a lot uh, of people do. Uh, you'll see bands, especially rock bands now. I'm thinking <laughs> of uh, Bad Wolves covering uh, Zombie and Five Fig- Finger Death Punch. Um, what was their big uh, cover? Oh, Bad Company. And I just feel like they just do the cover and. I mean, maybe different with Zombie because uh, she had just passed uh, Dolores. Uh, but I feel, or in other genres, pop music, if they sample a song, they don't give credit to where it came from. It's like they just, hey, this is my song, and they just kind of take credit, even though they yeah, might borrow yeah. parts. So you don't. So you're right. It is pretty cool for for Axel to just not only, hey, this, these are our versions of it. Check out, you know, what it used to be, like what inspired us to to do these songs. Uh, but yes, we spent a lot of. He's pure in himself. I'm oh, sorry. I'm just saying that because he is not. He doesn't have to worry about. You know, he's got. He's on a solid ground because he's he's got totally he's got his own thing. So people who would be less uh, you know self-sufficient and less uh, you know less strong as personalities, they might be worried about turning people onto the, their influences because they're too dependent on them. See what I'm saying? So Axel, that, that was that's also how, how why it's so cool of him to say that. And cover versions also, you know, doing them is sort of. Uh, well, I mean, you know, you like to add something of your own to redoing a version of a song, and that's why uh, Ain't It Fun, I think it was, um, you know, still its own kind of version compared to the original version, you know. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, for, and like the Nazareth, uh, actually, speaking of Nazareth, they had they were like the masters of cover songs. This Flight Tonight, Johnny Mitchell. Have you heard the original one compared to, you know, what Nazareth did with it? You can't even recognize it almost. I will have to check that out. Check it out, man. This flight tonight, Johnny Mitchell, original version, then Nazareth, the Nazareth worth version. And, you know, I mean, Love Hurts also, the vocal, and it's just like so chilling. It's it's incredible. But, you know, it's, for me, I did a lot of, I've I've covered the Dead Boys at least four or five times or something, and Steve's songs, and, you know, it's, you know, passing on the legacy and the education. And they're great songs, and they're fun to do, too, man. Oh, absolutely! But we spent a lot of time um, on there. Was, we're talking about ain't it fun in the spaghetti incident, but you know your relationship uh, with with Guns N' Roses preceded that. Uh, so this is a, a question from uh, Ken Begora. Curious how Hanai Rock's uh, D releases uh, ended up on Uzi's Suicide, and was it ever discussed that Welcome to the Jungle was also a lyric in their so- uh, song Underwater World? Yeah, that was. Uh... Underwater World, yeah, it's a Hanoi Rock song, and it's Welcome to the Ocean, Welcome to the Sea, Welcome to the Jungle, Deep Inside of Me. 
Well, I mean, that's also like a pain. It's like a, a homage to Hanoi, you know, homage. Because <laughs> I think it's, you know, it's not like, that's a great tie-in. I was talking to Axel. I mean, Axel talked about it once. I think he mentioned that the, they had that line in a song. Whether they, I don't think they like necessarily was like, yeah, let's take that song. It's just a, it's a connection between Hanoi and Guns N' Roses. It's, it's cool. But he he said that uh, at first he wasn't sure, but then he saw that line written on the walls, a uh, graffiti that said "Welcome to the Jungle" in New York or something, and then he thought, okay, it's public domain. <laughs> <laughs> so, so he was even he had his you know his conscience was saying he, he wanted to make sure that he doesn't you know breach against himself you know so to speak but i mean that that line you know tell you something i think uh, that was one of the songs that uh i don't know what it was yeah because we had ian hunter mata hoople you know ian hunter is to me is like is heroic he's like like bob dylan bob dylan you know he's really important as song one of the greatest songwriters of all time and he was uh uh as 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 um uh, Bob Ezrin, we were recording the Hanoi Rocks Tours from the Move album, and Bob Ezrin knew that we were big fans of Ian and Amata uh, Hoople. Actually, we asked uh, Ian to produce the uh, Back to Mystery City album, but then he he turned it down at the time, so then over and watched the bass player and the drummer, Buffin, uh, Dale Griffin, they they produced the Hanoi's Mystery City album. But Ian wrote some lyrics for us for the song, I Can't Get It, Boulevard of Broken Dreams, and Underwater World. So now <laughs> I can't remember who has who actually wrote that line. You never know. It might not be Nandy. Maybe maybe it was Ian Ian Hunter who wrote that. So all these years, <laughs> I can't remember. You know, really can't tell. But he he wrote. I mean, he was so he was so inspired. He said, "Oh, he'll get back to us in a week." And then he went back home and he wrote these great lyrics for uh, three songs. We needed some help with, and he 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 came through and like the same same night. The next day, he says, "Okay, I got him." I was like, "All right, it's cool." Yeah, but uh, you know, there are some lines that Andy already had. Some of the lyrics are, you know, uh, they're written between Andy and Ian, and maybe by Bob Ezrin. But uh, but uh, you know, it's cool. It's uh, I don't know whoever wrote that line. You know, I borrowed some lines from uh, uh, mostly from uh, uh, bands that I that I admire and respect for. Uh, well, say like motivating the Hanoi Rocks are motivating, running all alone in the low down streets, searching for my medicine, and a little, a little satisfaction from the woman is all I need. That line is from an undisputed truth song uh, called uh, "Overload." I think it was called "Overload." I'm running low on love, just fetching my medicine, and a little satisfaction from the woman is all I need. It's like rapping that those lines. Some reason I just put him in the song there. You know, that's that's like paying homage to my my uh, inspirations, and you know, yeah. some lines you do on purpose, some not. You know, when when Steve Bader's died, I wrote a song called Dead Boy. Uh, I mean, Dead by um, Dead Time Stories, which, which um, uh, has the lyrics. Sort of the lyrics have about fifteen song titles from Steve's career, uh, as his solo career, his, the, the the Dead Boys, the Lost in the Church. You can find him, you know, find him within the lyrics. There's, you know, uh, I've hidden, you know, like ain't, and, and so now it starts off by saying, so now you left me too. Ain't it fun? Ain't nothing to do. Partners in crime. So damn dead and alive. You were, re you were so ready any time. Last year couldn't make up your mind. Now you're gone. It's cold outside. So it's like, oh, ain't it? Ain't it fun? Ain't nothing to do. Those, those are two dead boy songs. Partners in crime was a lots of nature song. 
uh, so damn dead and alive. That was the dead voice. You were so ready anytime. Ready anytime. He's on his solo album, Disconnected. Last year, there's one song on the same album. For the Make Up Your Mind, there's a song called Make Up Your Mind on the album. You know, uh, now You're Gone and It's, it's Cold Outside was an old old cover that Steve did where I heard it first. And, you know, so that, and Dreams and Desires, was it, once again, was, you know, that's, and that concept was what Steve used on, in a song called, and the first first Lords of the New Church album uh, had, a, had a song called Little Boys Play With Dolls. And it was like a, uh, it was a tribute to the New York, the New York Dolls. And the lyrics have a lot of their song titles. And so I was using that concept, you know. It was saying like, yeah, the Babylon kids were just out there looking for a kiss, you know. Uh, and hey, trash boy, what you doing? Where, where are you going? What you doing? What's the matter with you? And the little boys play with dolls. You know, so that was, and there's a line, there's a line that says in, that, in the Dead Time Stories song, it says, uh, uh, it's, it's too late to repair the harm. And uh, there was a line in the little boys play with dolls where it says, "Hey, hey, uh, hey, lonely, um, don't you stop me talking about no dirty arm? Hey, hey, trash boy, it's too late to repair the harm." So that line was a tie into my song, to the little boys play with dolls song from you know that that time stories in my mind. You know those. That one line meant that. It was just little details like those, that. Yeah, those happen. cute, uh, those tie-ins. And I think fans really get a, a kick out of it. And before yeah, uh, we if get you to, notice what... Mm-hmm. Yeah, sorry, before, sorry, that's all right. Before, uh, I know Art uh, has a question, but the, I don't know if you... He, Ask it, me the question, it's all right. Not uh, before we get to that, uh, I, the, that, the other part of the fan question was, how did the Hanoi Rocks uh, D-releases end up on uh, Uzi's Suicide? Well, that was that was uh, Guns N' Roses. Axel and the guys, they, they wanted to... Uh, because they loved Hanoi so much, they wanted to wanted to make people aware of Hanoi Rocks, and they they just released the whole catalog. Just they like just that. Their, yeah, just like that. It was their idea. They did it. We we just like worked, all right, cool. That they were on Geffen, and then they started their own label. It was a Suicide, and they wanted to release the European albums, the first three, uh, four albums: Bangkok Shock, Saigon Shakes, Oriental Beat, uh, Back to Mystery City, and. Uh, uh, then uh, oh, self self destruction blues was the, the third album, so to speak. Even though that one record wasn't an actual, it was just a compilation of B sides and outtakes and stuff that the record company guy released as an album. So we figured, okay, hey, look, we got a third album. I guess so. Yeah. Well, hey. Anyways, uh, so uh, they put out the uh, European catalog on their own. You know, they just wanted wanted to. Uh, you know, uh, expand Hanoi's fame, make people more aware of Hanoi Rocks, which is so cool. And, you know, I always talked so nicely, so highly. They spoke about Hanoi, and, uh, with, uh, you know, and in, a, in the right way, because uh, we deserved that, uh, you know, that kind of, I mean, they got the point. You know, they, knew, For sure. they knew what it was about. For sure. But, uh, you know, talking about continuation, if you notice that I had the line, uh, the first Guns N' Roses album had a line uh, in the credits. It said that uh, "bitch slap rapping and your cocaine tongue, you get nothing done." Yeah, which was you could which be was mine. A line in the, you could be mine, right? And then, in the end of the usual usual illusion album, has in the credits it says "ain't it fun, Steve Vaders." Mm. You know, and they're pointing out to the next album, uh, the upcoming Spaghetti Incident, where they had the song "ain't it fun, Steve Vaders" in Steve Vaders' memory. So that was actually like that kind of like a it was like the you know Queen had that. The first album ended up with Seven Seas of Ride. That song, that song was, you know, as the last song, it was the entire song. At the end of that uh, song on that record, on the second record, you, 
it ends up with the, you know, with the crowd singing that we all like to be beside the seaside, we all like to be beside the sea. And the next album, Sheer Heart Attack, it starts off with uh, with some noise from a amusement amusement park kind of noise, and then you could, some, somebody's whistling. Somebody comes by and it's like <laughs> whistling the same melody as a tie into the previous album. So. That's it. I love stuff like that, and actually did too. So that's the kind of you know, here's that idea of uh, putting those in previous album, you know, uh, things to the up and coming. Now. How did Bad Obsession come about? You uh, contributing to that song? Well, that was the reason I was in LA for for that session. I came to play some. Uh, they wanted some harp on that, and they wanted some saxophone. So I came in. Uh, I came to LA for a uh, you know for. For that for a week or whatever five seven what five days maybe or something like that, I came to play the sax and harp on that song, the Bad Obsession, which was on the Usual Illusion one, uh, sixth track I think it was. Uh, so that's what I was there to do mainly, and then it was just uh, just happened. To, it just so happened that we decided to do any fun while, while I was still there because when Axel heard that song, he said, "Wow, this needs to be on that that uh, compilation where they're doing cover songs." That, uh, you know, and that's how that happened, you know. So that's why I was there. Bad Obsession, uh, they had a harp riff, and uh, they sent me the song before beforehand. And uh, uh, actually, it was Slash was very much the musical kind of director, as far as the backing track of the music goes. And he was, uh, you know, quite clear what he wanted. You know, it was, it was it's great to work with someone who really knows what they want and what they don't want, and, uh, you know, his sense of style, you know. Mm-hmm. What not to play? Often it's like it's not what you play, it's what you don't play, you know. Michael, I want I want to just quickly before I, um, we talked a lot about your influence on like obviously GNR and, and the glam metal scene and and how it was kind of appropriated by really shitty bands like Poison or, in my opinion, <laughs> Molly Crew. But hey, I'll, I'll I won't let you. You don't have to comment on that. But my question more is, you know, I have tickets to see Bohemian Rhapsody tonight, and it got me thinking about today's rock and roll and today's bands and. You had an interview, I think, a few years ago, maybe, I mean, probably a decade ago, or maybe even more, where you talked about, you know, how you lived on the streets and how that sort of became a part of your music and your lyrics and how it influenced you guys. And having nothing to lose was such a quality that made rock and roll bands, um, you know, have more emotional honesty or have a better sound or even have a better attitude. Today, it seems lost completely. I think all the bands today are either trust fund babies or, you know, people who just came up in the industry. They don't seem like they're struggling. I don't... I don't see bands struggling the way they used to, and I think that they've lost a little bit of grit. What do you? How do you feel about today's music and rock and roll and sort of the lack of, you know, that attitude that you guys had because you lived on the streets? Well, I'm just I'm just glad I'm not starting out as a musician now mm. in this day and age. You know, I'm so glad I've seen what I've seen and like the way I grew up. Like you said, I mean that it was a good school, you know, uh, school of life, whatever. But these days. Nobody has a clue, man. I mean, I don't know where to start. I mean, just forget it. <laughs> well, a good example Go ahead, could be like how a lot of people copied your your sound and your look. People are saying that now about Greta Van Fleet, taking that from from Zeppelin. So, I mean, maybe the formula. Yeah, typical. Yeah, then they re- recycle the same thing that's already been done, and it's. I mean, unless they're adding something new to it, then you know, it's. I think it's pointless and really redundant. And uh, well, I think it's just a bit, the music sounds like. What the business is and has been, you know, that's what we come, we've come to this point from. I mean, it's easy to see why, because the motivation is wrong for most most uh, people in the business, and 
just that's why, like I was saying, you know, that's why music sounds so boring these days. Everyone sounds the same, and it's just they don't even. I mean, rap music was great and from the beginning. It started out with the Grand Flash Furious Live message. You know, they had something to say actually, and you better have something to say if you're just going to talk over a drum beat. You know, right? Mm -hmm. So, but I wanted that to be in music too. But I like melodies. However. The metal bands that are just like making noise and just like growling, that's no melody either. So I don't, I'm not, I don't like that either. You know, so musically, I don't think we've gotten much better from. I'd rather listen to almost any record from like the early 70s, like Little Feet, ZZ Top. You listen to those records, nothing. I mean, I don't think anything these days, no matter how much the technology has has uh, you know progressed and whatever it's still in your fingers it's not the it's not your guitar or the machines but quite the opposite the ma machines can only just like take take the life out of it you know just keep it simple and you play from the heart these guys play from the wallet tell one point michael that you made earlier in the interview that i thought was very interesting i mean i think you're you're an exception probably to the rule in the sense that um, you weren't sleeping with groupies. You weren't sort of dominating women backstage all day, every day. It wasn't your prerogative the way sort of like when maybe it was for Gene Stanley or anybody else in that in that scene. But how do you feel? Stanley? I think you Who's mean Gene, oh, so, Gene Simmons and Stanley, uh, Paul Stanley. Oh, yeah. <laughs> sorry, I, I just mixed them up. <laughs> nice. Okay, I was first. thinking the same thing. <laughs> okay, I got it. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Gene Simmons. Yeah, but like so. So yeah, sorry about that. But what I yeah, yeah no, no, I, don't I, be. That was that was funny. I was listening to a podcast yesterday about forty Freudian slips and Elvis, and sort of about Elvis, and that's kind of I just had a Freudian slip. But um, what I want to <laughs> know is what do you think about. So I feel like today's music is they're at least rock and roll is rejecting, I, I think since Nirvana really, has been rejecting wholesale masculinity and sort of the, you know, the, the maleness of rock and roll. How did you, when you were like in the middle of that and you were seeing all these bands who were sort of, you know, even Zeppelin, who were sort of very extremely male-centric or strong or masculine sort of music and even in the, in the glam metal scene, how did you feel about it then? Did you kind of see it? Because you weren't, you weren't obviously engaging a lot of those activities. Did you see it as something that was weird or bad or awful or did you see it no no no, no 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 it's just what people were doing that in general and I, I just was not into it and i was just happy if i was left alone and nobody no i didn't need some you know sleazy you know groupie on my back you know i just i'd rather just you know and you know what they say when when uh, they come backstage and you're not interested is oh they must be gay they're faggots aren't they yeah I said, yeah yeah okay yeah uh, yeah, yeah we're, we're gay and i i'd start like with me okay, get it. I would like to be alone. Could you please leave us me? Thank you. you know, let them think we're gay as long as they leave, leave us alone. But uh, Hanoi was more into drugs than girls. That was the other thing. I noticed there was a band with the girls, you know, a lot of sort of, you know, double bub bimbos, like I used to say. And then a lot of big, big tits and all that, you know. <laughs> and uh, Hanoi was not, we were, I guess we were more into like the drugs than. And that kind of thing, that sleaze. But you know, you know what beats me still today? What is sleaze rock? People say, so sleaze rock. I'm not a sleazy kind of guy. What the hell is sleaze rock? It's supposed to be cool to be sleazy. Who wants to be a sleaze ball? Nobody. What is that about? Yeah, that, that's a sleaze fair, rock. <laughs> that's a fair. Uh, that's a fair thought, and this ties into what uh, Art was just talking about. And I guess I I, I want to see the Queen movie as well. This is a question from Michaela. If there ever were to be a Hanoi Rocks movie, who would you like to play you? I wouldn't like to have a Hanoi Rocks movie. I'd like to have a great documentary about Hanoi Rocks. Okay. Uh, any movie that has actors 
it, it just it's just corny. It's, it's bound to be. There's not one movie that's not you know silly. It's going to be interesting what they do with the dirt. But I mean, you didn't like the the Doors or any any sort of uh, music. The Doors, I I totally hated that. I thought it was totally ridiculous. I mean, I, I, not, it wasn't even funny. I, I got mad when I saw I saw parts of that. I was oh, come on, wow, man. Okay. That guy acting, Jim Morrison, nobody can be Jim Morrison except Jim. I think it's just like, I think a great rock and roll movie is like, for example, The Who, The Kids Are All Right. Mm. That, that's a great rock and roll movie. Or Spinal Tap. Spinal Tap. Spinal Tap. Spinal Tap is fantastic. Thank <laughs> God that came out because, and real, the guy, somebody, the bands or artists who, who's, you know, who's trying to say, like, oh, it's not really like that, you know, it's, finally, it's not really true. They're the ones, they're, they're the, you know, the joke's on them because they're exactly like that. <laughs> that's, that's, that is, thank God for that movie. That was so, so brilliant. When I saw that, I was like, oh, there's a God. Thank you, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> it's, it's so fucking, I mean, it's, it's in our daily lives, you know, still to this day. You, know, you, you go back, okay, yeah. That's final tap. Oh yeah, the girlfriend, the girlfriend manager, whatever. It's like, oh man, it, it was just one of the greatest things. And you know, the sense of humor. You gotta have. It's not like so serious. You know, it's just the way they did that. It was just perfect. I loved it. So, so a great comic relief. You know, where and that's why you. I kind of. I mean, if you feel corny. It's like you know, these guys with the. I mean, some bands are acting this kind of. All of a sudden, someone's like a you know the Lord of you know the devil from hell and whatever. I mean, it's cartoonish kind of. I mean, you know, for little kids, you know, school kids, little you know, cartoons and you know that fun to a certain point. But you know, it's not real life. You know, this reality that'll before too long face the brutality, the concrete and steel. Or the, the reality will hit you in the face. So you want you want to live in in, in the real world and. Uh, that's why those rich rock stars couldn't relate to, you know, when the punk thing came, it was like a, the best possible thing that could have happened at the time because they were getting complacent. The rich guys could mm. not, you know, they wrote songs that didn't, you know, we could relate to, play 20 minute solos that put people to sleep. So then this punk wave was very healthy because kids came out and said, you know, uh, that they, they couldn't necessarily play that well, but they, you know, they had something to say and they had the attitude. And that was the most more important than the personality, more important than learning how to play correctly. And that, that's why the the Ramones, there was a gig with the, the Ramones played a gig in uh, was the Roundhouse or where it was in London when, when some it's, it's been said that like three or four of those bands like the Pistols, the Clash, the Damned, and somebody else that came out of that that concert and, and you know started to play for real. The Clash were hanging out hanging around. Johnny Ramone apparently came out uh, after the sound check and said you know. Uh, they were trying to like you know get to meet him and then then they got to talk to him and and uh, they said you know we got a band too but we we're not ready yet you know we're still practicing and so Johnny says hey what what are you waiting for man just come out you know play I mean just come and check out our show you know we 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 really suck but it's great <laughs> you don't have to play like so well just start doing it right now don't wait till you're like you know at a certain level you, you know that was a good that was a good cool thing. But uh, no, and, and, I, and I, I think it's interesting that you sort of the one thing I did want because I have to, I have to leave. But the one thing I really want to ask you about and that I've, I've, I want to ask everybody from your generation this question, because I think it's very important in the 90s, in the early 90s, at least you were sort of, you know, your solo. I think you were touring a lot in Europe and sort of the grunge thing happened in America. And there's an argument that's always been had of who sort of was the catalyst that ended the glam movement. I mean, some people argue with GNR. Um, with Appetite, that really showed a different side of that scene and sort of did away with the Poisons and the Molly Crews, at least as important bands. But, you know, and then 
Nirvana completely just wiped it all off the face of the map and changed the trajectory of rock and roll. But I want to know, what did you at the time think about Nirvana and how has your opinion changed of what grunge did or to your kind of world in terms of music? Yeah, but to to that extent, to the, in that sense, that uh, Nirvana coming out and showing out, showing out of the, uh, uh, you know, exposing the phonies and the fakes. I mean, the bands that looked ridiculous after Nirvana came out. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The, the you know the phonies were exposed. That was the greatest thing about it. It's like yeah, that was healthy. Get rid of that. Like you know, like Iggy said that he helped wipe out the '60s. You know, <laughs> the, the, his contribution. No, that was that was necessary at at the time. But then the real bands like Guns N' Roses, that guys like that, you know, they stood on their own ground and they were strong enough to last any kind of wave like that. When it comes and goes, only the strongest survive. So, so the the bands who have actually their own thing and they, you know, nobody can call their bluff. Nobody can take away what they have because they they, they got it. So, but to me, people, <laughs> of course, it's uh, more, as usual. You know, I mean, you're like the one day you're you're like happening and next day you're like yesterday's news so i i would get a lot of that questions in the interview saying like okay so michael when you when you see this new young generation coming out with this you know this grunge thing that do you feel like you're old like you had it you know like like you know in the days days gone by <laughs> wait a minute look at these guys they look older than my grandfather i mean they got beards and wearing lumberjack shirts and look filthy <laughs> disgusting and look like they're doing heroin or something and moving slow on stage they're not i mean i feel younger than ever man <laughs> the new generation man you know I, I feel like i'm 15 man you know so to me you know but nirvana was great there's great stuff you know really cool cool good songs and stuff but then too many people tried it and then they you know start copying it's like 200,000 uh, you know v versions of nirvana never going to be as good but they're trying right. to do the same thing because they think that's the thing to do and that's what we were just so, talking about with uh, hanoi rocks and people copying so it's a cyclical you know, people just trying to follow a trend, and there's only one, you know, innovator. There's, you know, even you who have been credited being an innovator, you proudly wear your influences on your sleeve. So, I mean, you can yeah, have yeah. influence, and but I'm you just don't say, be a, a carbon copy, you know? Yeah, you can be a carbon copy. Find, do, find your own thing, do your own thing, but, you know, take your influences where you get them. Like, you know, I'm influenced from anywhere, from Little Richard to the Rolling Stones to the Ramones, and, you know, people, Steve Bader's. Um, Alice Cooper and you know Bon Scott and all these and blues. Uh, oh, Peter Tosh, I like reggae, uh, reggae people like Dennis Brown. Peter Tosh was one of my favorites. But all kinds of music and you know you make your own thing out of it and that's your ingredients from you know anything and more different the better. That's why it's uh, you know who was it? Bukowski, one of the uh, uh, I think it was his gravestone, his tombstone said, "Don't try." Mm. And wasn't Bukowski? Yeah. It was one of the writers. Yeah, it was Bukowski, wasn't it? Check out his gravestone. It says, don't try. It was good advice. Good advice. But it was still, you know, he's trying to be something you're not, then, uh, you know, you're not going to last long. And that's <laughs> why you have lasted. I mean, it's what's what's cool about you is that you're still, you're an original, but there's something familiar about it at the same time. And, and you're able to just, you know, make it obviously your own and survive and last through all these changes in music. I mean, I told you just the outpouring just from my show when I announced that you're going to come on, but that you're, you're such, you're still in demand. You're still touring. And obviously we can be here talking for, for hours. And I really appreciate, cause I know the time difference it's, it's yeah. late for you there. So I appreciate you taking any time to talk to us, but I'd be I, happy to, I'm happy to, you know, yeah, but, no, but, but I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about what's going on with you with you now, because you just yeah, got back well, from tour, you got to go on tour, the MC5 yeah, this weekend, tell us. Tell you, 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, let me just wrap up the, the past by saying that uh, sure. to me it was about integrity always and not selling out. And I never sold my soul and I'm proud of it. And I never, you know, hoard myself for money. And to a fault, you know, the Not Faking It album was on its way to selling millions. And uh, I, they made this commercial from Polygram Records put out this TV ad. It was every head, Headbangers Ball uh, commercial break. It would say, Michael Monroe. Uh, he's not faking it. He's the real thing. Uh, the brains behind Hanoi Rocks is back. And I came back from Japan from the tour, and I was like, Jesus Christ, who the hell put this out? And I called the label the next day. I said, hey, well, why, this, this ad is uh, misrepresenting me. It's like people think like, like Hanoi was calculated. It was spontaneous. I mean, that was really important to me. So I said, you know, take this commercial. You've know, got to redo it. And they said, oh, you don't like it? No. He wants to pull it? Yes. So then they, they pulled the plug on the whole album and uh, therefore never became, I could have, you know, that was probably the move that made, made me more the, rare, more, more the rarity that I am. But I figured, hey, I'm mm. no regrets, you know, either on, your, on my own terms or, or then not at all. And I then rather be more, you know, less known, more like a, one of the best secrets in rock and roll. As long as my stuff, all my records, I want to make sure it's all killers, no fillers. <laughs> I don't want to put up bad records. So I live with this shit. The rest of my life, so that's to me. It's always the quality and that, that it's authentic and real. That was more important to me than anything else. If I became the biggest name and the most famous and richest person in the world and uh, uh, sold my soul, then it would be not wouldn't be worth anything, you know. Which just you know might as well be, might as well not be, you know. If I if I compromise. Hey, hey Mike, Mike, Michael, you just, now, you just said something. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry, you just said something that I, that I thought about. That was a really important question. I know the fans would love to know, but. You did spend some time hosting Headbangers Ball, Ball correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did with John, um, my guitar player back then. But I was just getting to the today. Yeah, we did. That was fun. We were playing some bits and pieces of songs and whatever. You know, did a bit of that. I could have done more because uh, MTV would have been cooler with me there. With more Michael Monroe in there back then. They even they even edited my video, Man with No Eyes. They uh, with all the you know hypocrisy. I mean, they all this. <laughs> They have like beer commercials and tits and ass all over the place, and then they edit my, they censored censored my video, man with no eyes, and they ruined the whole solo section. It, it like the payoff was at the end of it when there's a riot and the guy throws a Molotov cocktail on the soldier who's wearing protective uh, gear. Burning people were not allowed to be shown and whatever, all these whatever rules, but anyways, as I was getting to this day and age today, starting from 2010, me and Sammy Affleck, we met, we've, uh, I mean, he's been in my projects like. Demolition 23 and 94, and Little Steven produced that album and stuff. So me and Sammy Alpha put together this band who's been that I have still to this day. The last three albums that I made, uh, 2011, Sensory Overdrive, and then 2013, Horns and Halos, and the latest one, Blackout Stage. Plus there's a compilation, The Best, Michael Monroe, The Best, which is two CDs and first one's like from 80, 85 to 2003. And then uh, the second CD is a, uh, there's some new songs too, but uh, the past three albums that I made with this band, and most people say that these records I made uh, are some of the best material I've, you know, my whole my whole career, and that is nice to hear. I mean, that's important to me. So it's nice to know that I'm still creating something new. We're doing something that's uh, still a uh, stand. Uh, you know, most people. I mean, I'd like to think that I'm evolving. We're getting better at what we do. That's what we try to do, and. Uh, you know, and keeping it real and, and uh, you know, uh, believable and, you know, so convincing enough that people, people get it. You know, this is a great band, I'm telling you. 
the band and he's called Michael Monroe as well. But you know, it's, it's kind of ironic because it's really a band situation, and you know, it's a democracy, and everyone can write. Every, cool. A lot of creative energy in this band. We all write songs, and we choose the best songs for the album. Doesn't matter who writes them, just the best songs. And this is such a strong band. I'll play with this band before or after any band in the world, from Rolling Stones to whoever you name it, because this is such a cool thing. And uh, you know, so we're playing. Uh, uh, MC5, uh, MC50, Wayne Kramer's doing this celebration tour, right? Mm-hmm. MC50 uh, in London. Uh, we're we're uh, playing in Glasgow and Manchester and London. Uh, and, uh, is it about a week from now. What is it now? We're here. Yeah. I think you start as, you know, yes, it's a podcast, but I try to get these out somewhat timely. I think you're starting the the Saturday, the 10th, and, and doing some the dates 10th, next yeah. week. Manchester is the 11th, and then London, Shepherd's Bush Empire, that's on the 12th. And then yeah. your, your band is, um, and I will show evidence of people saying it was the best, uh, your your current work is some of the best of your career. And it'll be the, I have a ton of fan questions, but I'll end here. It wasn't even a question. This is from our, uh, Ray from the UK said, not a question, but just tell him I think Sensory Overdrive is one of the best rock records of the last 20 years. So, you know, wow. it's, 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 it's all it was over, a man. by classic rock as the album of the year back then, and that's 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 so lovely to hear that. Thank you, whoever said that. That was great. Yeah, Ray from uh, the UK. I mean, a lot the fans all over. You have them. I mean, I think I'm grateful. I have listeners all over. Certainly not to the amount that you have, but uh, the outpouring of love came for you, uh, Michael. And uh, you know, I, I just can't thank you enough. I got, uh, for for coming on. I know Art had to just uh, jump off because he's I don't know. He's like uh, part superhero, part journalist. I do talk. I have a lot to say. I mean, I like talking about this stuff because uh, you know it, these are important things, and it's also nice to be nice to be able to say that. Nice to know that people are relating to what we're talking about here. Absolutely. So, uh, do you foresee? You know, because obviously I'm jealous, and I would like to visit the uh, you know uh, Finland and Spain and some of the countries you're going to <laughs> with your your band. Are you going to do anything in the states anytime? Uh... So playing in New York and LA, that's that's cool. It's always good, but. Uh, Playing in mid in the Midwest, in America is such a vast amount of you know area. You have to you have to play. Um, you know you got you just got to get on like a stadium act, uh, a support band for a stadium sized band, and play there for at least two years in in a row, and then people might notice. But you play to a couple of hundred people a night in somewhere in the middle of you know in in Midwest, and it's just gonna take you forever. You're never gonna be no one's gonna notice. So all you do is lose money. And, uh, you know, you live on a bus and you're miserable and it's not going to get us anywhere. So I decided let's not go there unless there's, a, you know, something that really makes a difference. It's, it's a waste. Now, unfortunately, these days, even rock bands that are big names, you know, they're having, you know, a hard time there. So uh, that's why we kind of laid off. I mean, lo- I love America. I've been living in New York City, 10 years in Manhattan, in Lower East Side. And I, okay. I just, and I, rock and roll music in America. I love American rock and roll, too. And yeah, so I would love to play there more, but unfortunately, it's just like the, it's like beating your head against the wall at this point. Well, let's try to start a campaign. Let's try to get Hanai Rocks to to open up for Guns N' Roses the ne- their next American tour and have Ain't It Fun be the closer every night, or I guess before Paradise City, because that's never going to change. Yeah, only one correction. Let's have the Michael Monroe band. Michael Monroe open up for Guns N' Roses. Oh, that's that's what I. That was just a Freudian slip. Michael Monroe uh, okay. band, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, Michael Monroe. I want you to your your current band to open up for for Guns N' Roses because yes. that would be amazing. And I've had those same conversations when I interviewed uh, Billy Rowe from from Jet Boy and a lot of other oh, yeah. these other bands that have some sort of old. I I would love to see um, 
you know, uh, Ernie C and uh, Body Count, you know, do some shows with uh, Guns N' Roses. And when I interviewed him, I mean, there's so much history, some great rock and roll that because I mean, GNR got creative when they, you know, having Lenny Kravitz or Skrillex when when they not in this lifetime started. I think yeah. fans would really get a kick out and appreciate and, and change things up for their next tour, whatever they may do, whatever they may do. So uh, I hope it happens because I want to I want to see you. I want to, uh, you know, not just uh, perform, but uh, I want to, um, you know, uh, just meet you, shake your hand. If you ever want to come down here to your old stomping grounds, I'm, I'm in uh, in Tribeca at uh, iHeartRadio. Wow. It would be wonderful to meet yeah. you because there's a lot more to talk about. That sounds great. I mean, that's I, I live on, you know, the Hells Angels block on uh, East 3rd Street between okay. 1st and 2nd Avenue. My debut solo gig in America actually was on that uh, on that their Independence Day block party for two days and nights. They were closed up the they closed off the street back then, and uh, there was a stage there, and I, I put this band together and played there. And and then at a little Stevens show at the the old Ritz on 11th Street, uh, Bruce Springsteen came to Bruce came to sing a duet with uh, Stephen Native American. That was on the Disciples of Soul second album, Freedom of Compromise. So they, then, as as I was leaving, the angel, there was a couple of the Hell's Angels. The vice president of the Hell's Angels uh, was uh, with a, with another angel downstairs at the bar and says, "Hey, Mike, you know, have a drink with us before you go, right?" Okay. So what are you doing here? Oh, I just want to see Bruce when he walks out because I'm a big fan. So when Bruce came, I introduced him to the vice president president of the Hell's Angels, and you know that was a, uh, after that you can imagine that because I lived across the street. This is all right. Anything you need, just stick your head out the window, man. <laughs> so, <laughs> that was my neighborhood. It was great. It was the noisiest and the safest block in the city, and you know, and uh, New York. I love New York. No matter, even if it's changed, it's still like and uh, downtown Tribeca. Oh wow, it's great. Great. I, I happily will come and see you, and we'll hang out with God for a coffee or whatever. I love yeah. it. Oh, I love it, Michael. I mean, this was uh, so much a, a pleasure, and I'm really yes, you have a, a great a great resume, but just to get your, the sense of your personality, how humble you are, and your thought process of just not just now because you, you're you're being a veteran for lack of a better word of uh, of rock, but just back in the day with doing the best to avoid drugs later on and and not being into the groupy thing and being an individual. I mean, that's that's very it seems rare. So I mean, you, yeah, I, I was even a freak within amongst the rockers I already were because they become like a like a you know a, a stereotype that that has yeah. formed. And you, do, you whatever you do, no matter what, then you don't want to get into a complacent or, or like a vicious circle of a, a routine of a, okay, this is this now. Okay, I'll be a rocker, put on the uh, you know uniform and you know be that be that. Yeah, that's right. I mean, to me, I was always a loner. Like my, my, I mean, you know, I walked my own way, made my own path, and uh, never, uh, you know, I, I thought it was, you know, that I did my own thing, and that's that's what I know how to do best, and uh, never tried to be anything that I am. Well, that's why you're you're Michael Monroe, and you have the fan base that you have, and. Uh... I, I, That's I, right. I think so. I believe so. And yeah. all I would wish for, like you said, about the big tour, it would be so amazing to maybe get a chance to show this band. This band is, I, I feel so, uh, you know, was have such a good time on stage, and and it's, it's such a fun show that I would like to have. If someday some some of these big names were also, have, you know, shown their appreciation toward me and my, you know, music and my past in Hanoi. Yeah, take us on the road on a big tour and uh, for a year or two, you know, tour the world with a, with a really big name, get the exposure to have the band 
be presented to a bigger amount of people, a bigger audience. That would be really interesting to see. I'd like to see what we can accomplish on that level. I think, Make, yeah. That's one of my wishes in I, the, for the future. I think uh, you're not alone in that, and it's interesting. Well, well we can end uh, here because it ties in the Headbangers Ball and and, uh-huh. and everything. When we interviewed Ricky Rackman, uh, he said that once, it was like recent years that Sebastian Bach told him backstage that like Axel misses him and you know wishes they were friends again, but just doesn't reach out for whatever reason. So it's just I feel like if the love for Hanoi and you were there with Guns N' Roses and the individual, you're forever entrenched. You're in the liner notes. You're on song. So why would anything change as far as a personal level? So I like to think if the the proper communica- communication was there, it could happen. Like I I think that you know um. Another thing I, I just want to start a petition on is to have uh, Alice Cooper do the garden with with GNR, and I'm friends with him. I I don't know if you're friends with her also, uh, Catherine Turman, who does uh, uh, his radio show, the producer. But she's like, I'll pass the word along to try to get. I think fans would love to see that too. Yeah, I mean, Alice, I love Alice. Alice is like such a sweetheart and so, such a cool guy. I mean, he, whenever he played, him, I've, I've been up with him when school was out and under my wheels, even you know, maybe four or five times in Finland. But when we opened up for him, two shows in in England, we did Plymouth and uh, Swindon, and. I saw us backstage in uh, in Plymouth. He said, oh, my God, I didn't know you were opening up for us. Uh, okay, tomorrow you're coming out to do School's Out. I said, oh, yeah? <laughs> in England, that's where I really need the exposure. So it was one of the greatest nights of my life, first of all. It was Halloween night, and we did School's Out. And after that, so many uh, people on Facebook, uh, there were like a lot of messages saying, hey, man, I never heard of you before. Great band. I love the re- bought the album. I love it. Uh, I'm coming to see you from now on. That is like such a amazing. I mean, in Finland, I'm already well known in, in this country, you know. Uh, so, and if I'm opening up for someone, I mean, Slash often comes uh, when, when he comes here. We we've opened up for him, or we end up doing something together, and, which is great too. But I mean, having someone you know bring me on stage in like London, England, where I could really use the exposure. That's a way you know it, it could work or it's supposed to work, that people see you and somebody who's in, in the same vein and, uh, you know, legend like Alice. It didn't hurt to open up for a Motorhead for three weeks. In, in <laughs> sure. To either, you know, and let me ask me up to sing the Born to Race Hell. I was actually on a record anyways. But, uh, hey, maybe you can do up, it uh, uh, in an easier way. Maybe you can do like, um, you know, when you do make another record, if you want to do like another version of uh dead jail and rock and roll get axel to be in, in a video with you again you know it just seems well, like the, him, but he already was <laughs> but if you do like a part two like how uh G, uh like uh metallica has the unforgiven unforgiven two unforgiven yeah, three yeah. so i, I don't know i just want it to happen i'm just cool. trying to make it happen you know <laughs> yeah and you know what little steven is sings the harmony on that don't really mind doing my time i mean he did he sang the lyric and the melody on the, I mean, he actually sang the backing vocal on the record, so which you know was no secret. But mm. uh, the thing is, uh, yeah, and it, uh, the fact is, we're now we we have our, our fourth album with this band, this same band with Sammy Alfano, those guys, Steve Conte, Rich Jones, and Carl Rockford. We have a new album that uh, that's that's ready to be released. It's coming out in the spring, so oh, got one awesome. Well, yes. you're more than welcome to, because I know you have. I mean, we probably just scratched the surface because I want to talk about uh, your your dad and being in, in radio because obviously I'm yeah. in radio. Um, but there's a lot to talk about. So maybe when the record comes out, if you want to come back on again, 
uh, we could talk about. Yes, I love to. Oh, that 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 means a lot. So absolutely. So when when you come on again, we talk about the new record. We could talk about radio itself, how that influenced you, uh, and just more about uh, your your current band and. You know, just uh, you're 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 still holding that rock and roll flag. It's it's people like you that are out there. It's like I know real rock and roll exists. I know that the fan base is there. I'm not the only person, and that's what doing this podcast has been like. I thought I was such I was alone. Like I'm I'm maybe one of the last of the of the '80s '70s. You know that 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 vibe. But no, there's listeners. I have listeners all over the world. Again, not nearly as much as you know you have, but. We're not alone, so we're trying to yeah, we're not alone. get them all as together. Long as I'm alive, and rock and roll is alive, and it's not the sixties or seventies. It's this this day I and mean, today, 2018, 19, whatever. You're right there because this is the coolest thing ever. Anyways, I mean, we'll we'll just I mean I'm there, man. Next time when I just get in touch with my through my management, like you just said, this time too, I'll be very happy to continue this conversation with you, man. It's really been a pleasure talking to you. It's uh, nice to know that we're not alone. <laughs> and, and when we're alone, we're—I mean, when we're lonely, we're uh, together. When we're alone, we're together in that too, right? <laughs> I love it, Michael. You going to sleep now? Is that what you're going to do? Yes, I—I <laughs> I will. It's uh, well, it's uh, what is it, one thirty? No, twelve thirty. Okay. All right. Uh, Midnight. Yeah, it's already Monday. Too late for yesterday. Too early for tomorrow. <laughs> okay. Well, you got so some thanks rest. Thanks so much, man. I'll speak to you soon. All my love and respect to you and you guys over there. Likewise. Thanks so much, Michael. Thank you. Bye bye now. Bye bye. Bye. How cool is that? And it, it sucks that well. It sucks that Art had to jump off, but I, I got to finish here because this is happening as I'm doing the podcast. Uh, Axel was tweeting more about. Uh, the Trump stuff. As far as I'm concerned, anyone can enjoy GNR for whatever reason, and there's truth to the saying, you can't choose your fans, and we're good with that. Having said that, my personal position is that the Trump administration, along with the majority of Republicans in Congress and their donors that support him and their own agendas, are doing a nation a disservice. We have an individual in the White House that will say and do anything with no regard for the truth, uh, ethics, morals, empathy, of any kind who says what's real what's real is fake and what's fake is real who will stop at nothing for power feeding off the anger and resentment he sows 24/7 while constantly whining how uh, whining how whatever doesn't go uh, his way is unfair most most of us in America have never experienced anything uh, this obscene this level in our lifetimes if we as a country don't wake up and put an end to this nonsense. Now it's something we definitely will all, all all pay hard for as time goes on. So, Axel just tweeted that actually Art uh, just texted me, even though he had to jump off. He's like, uh, Axel's ranting, so I checked it out. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it just goes back to how Art and I started this conversation about Axel and his uh, position. You know, I let Art, of course, get off. He's a guest. He's a guest co-host. I'm not going to... You know, well, I'm not going to shut him down. I'm going to say his piece. Uh, you know, for me, I, I like how Axel is expanding on this now. And I love how this is happening in real time. Uh, I, I, I can't, I don't want to be a hypocrite, you know, and, and say that Ted Nugent can't say what he says. I don't know if I've ever said that. Like I said, I don't like it. But Axel is, is happy with his position, doesn't care if he loses fans. I mean, why should he? He's Axel fucking Rose. It's Guns N' Roses. The, the 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 his name and the name of the band are forever legendary 
You know, and that's not even coming from a guy who hosts the GNR podcast. They are on the the pantheon. He is on the pantheon of of rock forever. Uh, so he can, but is is he going to lose you? I guess that's the question. So let me end uh, let me end episode ninety here. As we, what a great conversation with Michael Monroe. You know, of course, I want your your feedback on that because I, I couldn't get to all your questions. I'm sorry. And he's a talker. He's definitely a talker. But you know, the show is about. You know, this episode is about him and his story. So uh, just, just let him go and try to get in our questions where we could. So uh, we'll obviously, of course, love your your, your feedback and your thoughts uh, about Michael Monroe and, you know, what he said about doing Ain't It Fun, you know, in, in the future and would Axel do it. But Axel doesn't seem to be focused on that at all. He's focused on politics and, and Trump. So, you know, I've gotten some of your opinions on online, on Facebook and Twitter. Are you going to stop being a fan? Uh, I mean, this band more than I think more than most have survived a lot of negative and a lot, a lot of negative press and still survive and tend to thrive, you know. And and not in this lifetime is proof of it, you know. Even with ticket sales, even with the box sets uh, sales, the prices of that, the band still it'll be interesting, you know. If they do another leg in the U.S., what is it going to be like then? You know, as the allure worn off, you know, a lot of these celebrities, people are sick of it. You know, I will say that I agree with Art on that. Even if if a celebrity shares my my view or some of my views, it's just sometimes it's not the place, time and place. And I mean, it's such a long conversation. And it, yeah, we can't help it. It's bleeding into a Guns N' Roses podcast. You know, uh, same thing with the, you know kneeling it and NFL games. And I know you all over the world. A lot of this makes worldwide headlines. So uh, please, if you have any questions or want to know more about it, uh, you know, just comment on this uh, this episode, and you know, we'll continue the conversation that way. Uh, but I, I I support. I mean, I support Axel. You know, I I I'm only 35. I'm not as old as Axel. I'm not as old as, as Michael. I will say I've never seen hate like this, you know, even during the Obama administration. And I don't think that's the fault of maybe one man, but he's not helping. That's where my problem is. He's just not helping. You know, if you have a certain, you know, health care plan, foreign policy, the wall, whatever. But I think there's a certain way to conduct yourself. And I think that's what turned a lot of people off to Axel for a while, that he— you know, produced these results, songs and albums, and but people didn't like who he was. So, I mean, right now, whatever news you follow, you can say, hey, America has these results, but they don't like the man. So there's is there a similarity between Trump and Axel despite all this in that regard? Maybe. I'm not sure. Uh, I would love to l- know your thoughts, and maybe, you know, we can read them uh, on the next episode of the AFD show, which— uh, as scheduled, should be, it'll be a different conversation. Uh, Matthew McKagan, of course, you remember, you, you're familiar with the last name. It's Duff's brother, who played on uh, Move to the City, Horns, and I believe he's a uh, music teacher out in L.A. So we're going to talk about, you know, not just growing up with Duff and maybe just him as a person, but just the, the dynamic, uh, a sibling dynamic of seeing, you know, your, your brother almost die and how famous he is and just... I like that. I want to get that viewpoint uh, from him. Uh, so that's that's going to be fun. And we'll see. You know, I don't know if I'm going to have a guest host or not, but uh, please feel feel free to send your your questions, your comments, your your suggestions 
um, anywhere you listen to us. You know, you, whether it's on the iHeartRadio app, uh, you found us on AlternativeNation.net. Uh, really appreciate uh, UltimateGuitar.com sharing a lot of our our interviews. So maybe you found us through them. Uh, Spreaker, Stitcher, SoundCloud, uh, iTunes. For some, uh, we have uh, almost half our shows up on uh, YouTube right now. So you, as long as you put in Appetite for Distortion in YouTube, you're gonna get, I think maybe uh, our first. Forty, I, I forget. I mean, working on that with uh, Mr. Raz Q, as we spoke about last episode, uh, ninety episodes, and look what we're talking about now. I mean, this is—you can't get any more recent. It's not—we're like not rehashing everything. Couldn't get more recent as me reading as I'm recording these tweets from uh, Axel Rose condemning <laughs> Donald Trump in the White House. Uh, I'll just—I'll put this out there to the universe, Axel. If you ever want a platform. To talk politics, I put I tweeted this to to Del James also. Come on the show, man! I would fucking love it. Uh, if you've been, if you've been a, a follower since the beginning, I did go on my my friend uh, radio friend Schmonty's podcast, and this was like God knows how many episodes ago. Could have been like, or I think it might have been last year. It's probably more accurate time uh, to put on it. He's like, who's going to be your your one hundredth? Uh, oh, he's like, when are you going to interview Axel Rose? And in my my first answer was never. I just I don't have that. I don't know. I just don't think highly of myself if, in that regard. Uh, I mean, I mean, how many interviews have Axel done anyway? Uh, and I appreciate the people who tag me in my GNR forum, thinking that he's like, hey, maybe he'll be a good guest for Appetite for Distortion. To my response was, I think I do have a better chance at Jesus Christ. Uh, but if the world works in funny ways, if you want to talk politics, you want to shit on Trump or whatever, as long as it's not you know, direct hate speech saying, hey, I want this sect of people to be hurt, which he's not saying. There are those individuals that are like that on both sides, on all sides, and regardless of country, there are shitty people. But there's also good people that may differ from opinion. So uh, Axel made his opinion clear. (laughs) Art Devana made his opinion clear. I'd like to think uh, I make mine clear, but of course, I'm very tangible, so... Again, uh, on any of the outlets, feel free to reach out on, uh, of course, Facebook.com uh, slash The AFD Show on Twitter at The AFD Show. Or even you know, shoot us an email. I don't check it too often, but I do. Uh, the AFD Show at gmail.com. Lots of ways to be on this podcast night train. Thanks for uh, hanging out on this long episode, but uh, lots to discuss with, uh, with Artivana and Michael. So until the next one, when are you going to see it? In the words of Axel Rose concerning Chinese democracy, I don't know if soon is a word, but you'll see it. Thanks to the lame-ass security, I'm going home.